Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 17th, 2014, and this is episode 1282 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, 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 that's right. Time for Monster Calls, not Monster Trucks. Monster Calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. That's the think line because we encourage you to think for yourself. Now, if you pick the phone up right now, dial those numbers and think, I'm going to talk to Jack. You're, it's a, it's a podcast. It's pre-recorded. You'll get a voicemail. You can leave me a message and then maybe you'll get on the, the, the call next week. If you listen to the way the calls go today, this is textbook for getting on. You ask your question, then give me your details. If you do that or make your point and then give me your details. One or two sentences. If you don't get your question, or you point out one or two sentences, the odds that you will get on the air go down exponentially from there. Just trying to help you out, not picking on anybody. Also, please call from a quiet area. I got some calls today that were kind of good, um, that have a little bit of audio problem. They were good enough where I could hear it and I could repeat anything you'll miss. And then, you know, I thought they were good enough, I put them on. But, you know, trying to find a place where it's quiet. And I think a one call today, what you really need to do is look at the, if you're using your cell phone, look at the bars on your cell phone. If there's not at least two solid bars, Go find another location because it was a kind of one of those I, I it, that type of thing in the middle of the call where it faded out and got real quiet. Anyway, good enough to use those. So again, eight six six sixty five. Think the call is toll free in the United States. If you're overseas, you might want to try using Skype or something like that. And you overseas folks that can't make that phone call, remember it's totally acceptable, totally acceptable for you to use some kind of recording software and record like Audacity's free. Make a recording, keep it under two minutes is the best you know bet. I'll probably tolerate up to three for a call and uh, save it as a file and email it to me and put call for Jack in the subject line and I'll know it's a call and I'll put it in with the call queue and we'll see if we get you on. Uh, sometimes folks do that from other parts of the world and I love to hear from our audience all over the uh, all over the planet, not just here in the United States. Before we get to your calls, though, let's start out by going ahead today and taking care of our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. JM Bullion is a go-to source for silver and gold bullion. Um, I had a silver sponsor, silver and gold sponsor, going on almost a year ago now. That was pretty good, and uh, they were a little bit high in price, but a small business trying to make a living, tough cutthroat industry, as I later found out more and more for myself in getting involved with some of the things that went wrong with Mulligan Mint, which is on, I don't know, That's for those who want to know about that, I don't know right now what we're going to do going forward with the Mint, uh, given the current situation. But, you know, I wanted to make sure we always had a place for you guys to get silver and gold, so I found Jam Bullion, great relationship, uh, reputation online, great people, cool people, uh, and I could talk to the president. And I was actually recruiting an advertiser for you guys that would be in this industry. And the two that I first talked to were Monix and Atmex, where nobody would talk to me at all, except like, you know, like some person in random person in marketing that was like, yeah, we might consider doing that. Uh, how much is it? And I'm like, you know, can I talk to anybody that could fix a problem? And they're like, well, customer service. Yeah. Okay. Goodbye. Um, so then I found Michael over at, uh, Jambolian and he's like, yeah, I'm the president. If you have a problem, let me know and I'll handle it. Bingo. Type of company I'm looking to do business with. Then I look at their pricing. Better than Monix and Atmex on average anyway. So better pricing, better service, small company, can handle problems direct to the ownership. 
brought them on. So they are a great sponsor. Check them out today, jambullion.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Hey, look, triangle of gun operator efficiency. I say it over and over again. The operator themselves, the gun, and the ammo. If you have a gun and no ammo, you got an overpriced club or maybe a barter implement or something you can hawk at a pawn shop to get a little bit of money out of it. So you got to have ammo. you got to have a gun. You don't bring a gun to a gunfight. you got a problem. Uh, we'll actually talk about bringing a knife to a knife fight in the uh, history segment today, but it's not really where we're at yet. But then there's the linchpin. So you can buy a good quality gun. You can buy good quality ammo. And you can buy a good quality firearms education, but you have to go participate. And you have to train both with the trainer and then what you really want with firearms training You want a school that, yes, will train you while you're there, but will send you home with the information you need to constantly be retraining yourself. That's what you'll get from Fortress Defense Consultants. And remember this, guys. If you can't get up to Indiana where Frank Sharp Jr. and his, his guys are, if you can set up a group, probably five to six guys would be your minimum. Just set up a group of guys. Get in touch with Frank. They'll bring the training to you if you have a class size of that size or larger. You know, maybe you could do it on your own property, especially if you live in Texas. A little more on that in a second. Um, but, um, you know, even if you don't, there's probably a range somewhere near you. I mean, Frank is a certified instructor. Uh, he can usually work with any range to be able to put together uh, training. Uh, check him out today, FortressDefense.com. Best ways to find Fortress Defense Consultant, Jam Bullion, and all of our sponsors go to thesurvivalpodcast.com first. Again, thesurvivalpodcast, or for some of you guys, you say thesurvivalpodcast.com first. And uh, click on their banners in the right-hand margin or their links in the show notes. Every day that I have a show, I have a set of show notes for you guys that you can get information and more links and stuff on. And I'll always have a sponsor a day in those links. Again, our episode today... 1,282 episodes of the Survival Podcast we have done. Um, next up, want to remind you guys about how you can support the show with the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. If you join the Member Support Brigade, you help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. And uh, you'll get a lot of great benefits, like some content that's available nowhere else. Um, I've got a workshop coming up, and uh, it doesn't really help everybody because not everybody wants to come to the workshops. But uh, when I announce the workshop availability this afternoon, uh, I will give the MSB members the full weekend to sign up before I open it to the general public on Monday. That's another example. And I give you a lot of great discounts, uh, really awesome discounts. And uh, what I've started doing is just telling you every day one place that gives you a discount that maybe you didn't know about to give the guys back there that are not sponsors but are supporters of the show through the MSB a little exposure. How about Paladin Press? Paladin Press gives every member of the MSB 15% off all products in their catalog on their website. Paladin Press, for those who don't know, is like the go-to source for info products on prepping, tactical, you name it, DVDs, books, things like that. They're an amazing uh, company. They've been around forever, way before the Internet. You know, you'd get, you'd get magazines like Soldier of Fortune when you were a kid or Black Belt Magazine or something like that, and you, you'd find advertisements from Paladin in there. And they, they're, they, you know, they've stuck right into the Internet age uh, from knife skills to, to gun skills to uh, escape and evasion, you name it. Paladin Press has it. And if you're an MSB member, you get 15% off. Just another example of why you might consider joining the MSB. If you want to join the MSB, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and you can see how to sign up there. It's, uh, it's really not a difficult thing to do at all, and it does help support the show. Again, 18.3 cents an episode. So if you get done with today's show and you think, you know what, TSP's worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining and then get the ROI back on all the discounts. It'll more than pay for it. Um, 
Again, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, first responders like EMTs, firefighters, and paramedics. Also, active duty or prior service. You do not have to be currently serving or retired, just having served in any of those capacities. You email me with service discount in the subject line to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. One or two sentences, who you are and what you're doing, or what you did if you're prior service, and I'll send you a discount code back to get you an even better deal on the MSB, but you got to do it before, not after you join. Once you've joined, it's 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 just the way the system works. It's difficult for me to try to change your membership. Uh, it's actually impossible. Anyway, with that, I've got uh, all the, the general housekeeping wrapped up. Let's talk real quick about the year 1282, our little history segment to get a little perspective on life here, especially on a Friday. In the year 1282, the Sicilians bring a knife to a knife fight. Charles I of Sicily, who is by birth a Frenchman, anchors his ships off the coast of Sicily in preparation to attack the Greek emperor of Byzantine. Um, when the king seems to have forgotten is that Sicily is largely inhabited by people of the Greek ancestry. Tempers are at a breaking point. We talked about why yesterday. As the Sicilians gather in the plaza waiting for evening vespers, a pretty Sicilian woman is accosted by a king's soldier. Her husband, being a Sicilian, takes exception and stabs the soldier to death right there in the plaza. Soldier's buddy come to his rescue, not realizing the plaza is filled with Sicilian men. Every one of them with a knife handy. But the next morning, by the next morning, not a single Frenchman can be found alive in Palermo, including the Archbishop, who unfortunately for him could not pronounce the word Sicily. I guess I would be dead. I don't know how to pronounce that word either. The one word that could have saved his life, it means chickpeas. It was believed that no Frenchman could pronounce it correctly. A few months later, King Pedro III of Agaranoth will annex Sicily. Um, my lesson from this, uh, Sicily was invaded. The people that did the invading had a weapon, a blade, and all of the citizens had the same type of weapon. There are more citizens than invaders, equal weapons, unequal numbers, soldiers zero, citizens one. And that's why we don't disarm a population. And that invasion can come from within or without. But that's why we don't disarm a population. And what started the fight? Somebody that thought they had more power than the citizenry deciding, I want your wife, I'll take her, and there ain't jack you can do about it. Resulting in immediate death. Because you tried to basically rape a woman. So you got to die. So you get a burial at the edge of the sea, not at its sea, I guess, and you're done. And then when your buddies come and say, we will enforce our will upon you, they all die too. And when that happens a couple times, it doesn't happen anymore. Now, there's no joy in anybody's death, but this is an example of either there was going to be immediate invasion and oppression, or the people were going to rebel. The people were only able to rebel because they were armed, and guess what else they were? They were trained. They knew how to use that weapon. If everybody was just walking around with a knife but didn't know how to use the weapon, it would have been a different thing. That's my thought there. Uh, the English coin on trial. So we talked about coin clipping. And coin clipping and counterfeiting was really becoming a problem in England. And this is where you'd have a coin, King's Mark on it or whatever, and it was supposed to be guaranteed to be a certain weight of a coin. And people would just snip a little bit off the coin, just a little tiny bit. Well, if you do that with every coin you get, eventually you build up enough silver to have, or gold to have another coin. So what they did 
as they had the Warden of the Mint even under suspicion. And after moving the Mint to the Tower of London, the Warden's now required to hold back one coin for every 10 pounds of silver minted, which he placed in a box called the Pricks. The trial of Pricks will be held every three months and the judge and jury, uh, with a judge and jury of expert assayers. Although coin inspections have occurred prior to this time, King Edward issued a proclamation, 1279, and a for, for a formal procedure to be established. This procedure will continue with some modification into the modern day. So basically, this is a mint audit. Because what would happen is, I mean, think about it. If you're like being nailed for coin clipping, you know, you spent a coin, you're like, it was like that when I got it. Well, wait a minute, was it? So like, then you start saying, well, did it even come from the mint? Proper. Who's overseeing the mint? I mean, that would be a logical defense. So to even begin to truly put a lid on counterfeiting and coin clipping, you had to first nail down proof that when we take silver and put it into circulation, or any coin and put it into circulation, that it's of a known size, weight, purity, etc. So this is one of the first things about that. And remember, it wasn't for a long time until Sir Isaac Newton put ridges on the, you know, the coin. So if you take a coin out of your pocket today, like a quarter, and look at it, you see the ridges on it? That was, that was to prove the coin had been clipped. Because if there were ridges on a coin, you could look at those ridges and you knew that it hadn't been clipped. With that, let's get into uh, the uh, main topic of today's show. And I want to start out with actually playing something for you uh, from a guy named Bill Whittle, I think is his name, and it's from his show Afterburner. And from you know listening to this guy in the past this is one of these guys he's really kind of a typical talking talking head there's times where you're like right on man and there's times where you're like oh, it's just more basic statism from a different marketing point but in this case not so in this case he's dead on and he's talking about his visit from the place he lives uh California to the place I live Texas and the dramatic differences and it's called I can't believe they let you do that. I'm going to play it for you. I have a few comments and we'll go into your calls. Um I want you to pay attention to the very beginning where he says I like visiting the United States of America and pay attention to what he means by that. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Afterburner. I'm Bill Whittle. Well, I was in Texas for Thanksgiving this year. I flew in from Los Angeles, and it's always such a pleasure to visit the United States of America. I was raised there as a boy myself. First of all, I was the guest of the kind of family that you would get notes on in a Hollywood screenplay as being not believable. A six-foot-four-inch, hard-working dad with the best natural sense of humor I've ever seen, without the usual self-loathing that's behind so much professional comedy these days. A bright, adorable, happy mom. Kids that write love notes to their parents on their 20th anniversary or studying to become electrical engineers and running a toy pledge drive for the homeless for Christmas. I mean, guys, you've got to green light this thing. You just can't make this kind of stuff up. And being Texas, everyone had their own guns and everyone knew how to use them and everyone took it seriously and had fun at the same time. And no one was angry or neurotic and I felt the way I always do when I visit a deeply but quietly religious family that I'd been transported to the kingdom of the elves where everything just works better. Where everyone works and everyone does chores and all the bills are paid and they look forward to being together and no one seems to be in great danger of jumping off of a bridge or being on antidepressants or blowing all of their money in Reno or making four simultaneous alimony payments or any of the other occupational hazards in the world that I come from. 
So that shook me. But here's what really got me. I knew we were going to go skeet shooting. I was looking forward to that a lot. I haven't had a lot of time doing it. And the only thing more satisfying to the male ego than being able to build a good fire is the feeling of pulling a trigger, feeling that thud in your shoulder, and watching a clay pigeon, sorry, not a clay pigeon, a hunter orange, environmentally safe, non-toxic, edible, biodegradable pigeon explode in midair. I would have gotten more of them, but they obviously loaded my shotgun with blanks to get a cheap laugh out of their visiting Yankee city slicker, which is okay, that's fine, I don't have any particular problem with that, but we didn't go to a shooting range. Where did we go, you might ask? Well, we went to the backyard, right down by the river. We just set up the launcher and blasted away on private property in a neighborhood with other houses within view and earshot, and no one complained, and the police didn't come, and there wasn't a city ordinance prohibiting it, and I wasn't required to sign a release or take a shotgun safety course, and some people chose not to wear ear protection, and the men were not required by law to shoot no more than the women shot. Dogs without leashes were present. I was not required to use OSHA-approved safety goggles. Impressionable children were present who, parenthetically, outshot the adults and hogged all of the rounds more properly reserved for visiting internet celebrities from California. Diversity was celebrated, but only in the sense that there were Texans who could hit skeet and those visiting from out of state. We did not have to take a quick customer service survey. My ID was not checked. I was in the presence of secondhand shotgun smoke, and it didn't cost me anything, except for my self-respect, obviously. Now that night, Thanksgiving night, we went out into the backyard where there was a pile of cleared brush about the size of a Buick, and we lit a bonfire. We used sensible Texan diesel fuel to get it started because Hollywood gasoline just makes a big flash of light and doesn't actually, you know, start damp wood burning. So there I stood in the 33-degree Texas evening, and once again, I had that thought that I'd had again and again and again the entire trip. I can't believe they let you do that. Texans, apparently think you should be allowed to start a bonfire in your own backyard. Presumably, Texans think that if in the process you burn your house to the ground, well, then maybe Texas isn't for you. Now, on the other hand, just down the street in the People's Republic of Santa Monica, well, there's not any kind of fires allowed on the beach. I have to tell you, folks, I've lived here for a third of my life now, and I don't think even progressive Californians are stupid enough to know how to set fire to a beach. No, not here. Not where I come from. No fires, no parking. All animals must be on a leash. No photography. Camping not permitted. No lifeguard on duty. Penalties will apply. Permit required. It's a gun-free zone. Noise ordinance enforced. Fly quietly. Minimum altitude 1,000 feet. No ATVs. Personal watercraft prohibited. Wake limits strictly enforced. Plastic bags no longer available. Tow-away zone. Fishing permit required. Environmentally sensitive area. No dogs allowed. Se habla espanol. The entire state now is a fun-free zone, and violators will be prosecuted. You know, I was in Texas back in 2009, and I was killing time in a tiny little train depot. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a sign posted there for the railway workers, and it almost knocked the wind out of me. It said, you have the right and the obligation to work safely. Say what now? I have the right to work safely. Who can argue with that? But the obligation? Are you telling me that in Texas, and who knows, maybe there are other parts of America that still shock me for being a free country. Are you telling me that in Texas, there's an equal obligation on the part of the worker or the citizen to not be a flaming jackass? I can't believe they let you do that. Two days after I took that picture, that was four years ago, remember, I was back in California walking into a typical apartment building in Studio City. And because I'd been thinking about that sign, I noticed something that had been hiding in plain sight in front of me the whole time. 
every single building in Los Angeles has one of these. Every apartment complex, every gas station, 7-Eleven restaurant, every single building. It says detectable amounts of chemicals known to the state of California to cause cancer and birth defects or other reproductive harm are or may be found in or around this facility, including tobacco smoke, chemicals found in construction materials, chemicals found in automotive fumes and exhausts, chemicals used to clean swimming pools, spas, hot tubs, and chemicals used in pesticides for weed and pest control. We Californians, with our vast moral superiority over the low-sloping forehead, knuckle-dragging Neanderthals out there in Texas and the rest of flyover country, have, through the grace of our enlightened legislature, required by law a sign on every single building in the state saying that if you force 40 gallons of Formula 409 a day into a rabbit for two years, a statistical increase in cancers has been detected. So, now that there are warning signs saying that there is car exhaust present in or around this facility, we simply ignore the warning signs, or we just filter them out. They won't let us do anything here. Oh, who is they, by the way? Oh, you know, the small-minded, feral, spiritually atrophied bureaucrats who my idol P.G. O'Rourke described as the student council weenies. People who get sexual pleasure, apparently, out of telling other people what to do. California, once a paradise of freedom, creativity, harebrained schemes like personal computers, and fun, 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 has allowed these genetic defectives to run what was once the fifth biggest economy in the world into the ground and to do for real what the puny San Andreas Fault couldn't do in its wildest dreams, push California into the ocean. You know wouldn't take but 20 Texans with AR-15s to conquer all of California. You can even load them with blanks like you did that shotgun you guys handed me. Just the sight of a black rifle like the one I own makes most of these people puke in their Priuses. And I'd like to remind my new freedom-loving Texas overlords that as a trusted media personality, I can be useful in rounding up other Californians to serve in their underground fireworks factories. Well, hang on. Well, come back. Come back. I forgot something. Come back for a second. All of you uh, California liberals who voted for all of these job-killing policies are now driving east on Interstate 10 to catch up with the jobs that you chased out of the state in the first place? Don't mess with Texas. There's some tongue-in-cheek humor through all of that and some real factual stuff in all of that, like the stupid warning signs that California requires to be put in every building that tell you that there, that, that there are emissions from cars outside that could be dangerous. This is one example of pointless regulation. That warning sign does no good for anybody. All it does is cost money. That's it. But I think that the the thing that actually most hit me was the fact that when you look at the postings for job sites in the state of Texas, that the worker has an equal obligation to be responsible for their safety, as does the owner of the, the establishment. That not only is the establishment expected to provide a safe environment, the employee is expected to not be stupid, to not be a moron, to not stick a knife in their eye, or what have you, or to realize that if I just spilled water, that it could be slippery there. That it's an, it's incumbent upon people to be responsible for their own safety. 
in addition to people not to endanger the safety of others. Anyway, don't have a lot more to add to that one. I will have a link in the show notes to get proper credit uh, to Afterburner, who uh, is the, uh, the, I guess that's the name of the show. I don't really know this guy that much. I know last time I played something by him, I got a bunch of emails from people that said, oh, this guy's terrible on this and terrible on that. I don't care. He made a good point on this. I played his point on this. Um, and I also say to you folks that are on your way here from California, don't bring the crap with you that caused the demise of your once great state. I agree with that completely. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Brooke from Central Illinois, and I'm calling you with a permaculture question. Um, my question is, what kind of permaculture projects could I undertake during the next growing season for 2014? at an organic farm that's not at least knowingly using permaculture practices. Um, the details for this are that I have a corporate job in IT right now, um, so I'm kind of raising capital for my permaculture business, but I still want to work towards learning more about permaculture, and this will be my second year interning on a farm. And she uses mainly organic practices, but I would really like to start implementing some permaculture there. The only project that really came to mind that was small enough for me to do in one growing season um, was something like she has an orchard already. I was thinking of taking one of her fruit trees and building a guild around it and putting a bunch of plants under it and chopping and dropping and stuff and then comparing the tree that I built the guild with to a tree that of the same species that I didn't touch and, you know, just mark down different metrics between the trees. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that you could think of maybe that I could do permaculture on her farm, but um, any ideas would be appreciated. Love your show. Thank you so much. Bye. Well, there's nothing wrong with the idea that you have of putting in some perennials into a guild situation. We'll have more on guilds later, so I really won't talk about that right now from another question. Um, the, and and maybe doing a similar perennial planting and not gilding it and and looking at the difference of it. But really, when you look at something like a tree that has you know a three to seven year uh, cycle toward productivity, you're not going to see a tremendous difference, um, especially in the environment you're going to be in. And more on that in a second. Uh, in in a year, in a season. Now you might see that the same space that was reserved just for one planting has all these other things and those are also productive um and you know multiple perennials and you can see that but i mean that would be kind of a given that i don't know that would make a dramatic impact um well, there's nothing wrong with that approach but you know think about the environment you're in when you if you're in an organic farm environment you probably already have really good soil and really good life and i think we need to understand that organic farm and permaculture aren't mutually exclusive it's it's is there an intentional uh, integration of permaculture principles going on? That is there a permaculture design going on? And there probably most of the time is not. Um, but many aspects of permaculture will be going on. In organic farming, you're going to use many of the same techniques, such as sheet mulching, uh, heavy mulching, organic manure buildup, composting, soil care, all of these things going into it, especially if we're not you know, like really exploiting human labor to the level of slave labor. And what I mean by that is if we look at something like, you know, the way that they're doing organic carrots in the Baja, Mexico right now, uh, it may be organic from a 
lack of chemical standpoint, but it sure as hell ain't permaculture from a people care standpoint where the workers there are practically slaves. I mean, they're one step above a slave, if that. And uh, so that, you know, and then the, the, what's being done there isn't really improving the, the land. And the n amount of input being brought into that situation, because it's a monocrop environment, isn't improving the land. Most organic farms in the United States are very much improving the land. They're producing little to no waste, which is a permaculture principle. They're returning a lot of the surplus back to the land, which is a permaculture principle, not a scheme for the redistribution of wealth, as some of the hippie contingent has tried to turn it into, but a return of surplus to the investment of the first two, care of the earth, care of people. So that includes all of the surplus productivity that generally can't be sold or bartered with being returned back to and understanding that some that even could go away shouldn't, it should remain and go back to the end. So that's what's generally lacking with organic farming is really tying that loop together. But a huge part of permaculture is perennials. Permaculture is not just perennials, though. But it's a huge component of permaculture. Like There's plenty of space for annual cultivation in permaculture systems, specifically in Zone 1, Zone 2 environments. But if we can bring perennials in and actually shore up things like soil erosion, habitat diversity, um, predator habitat, increased attracting of pollinators, Uh, more nutrient cycling, greater biomass accumulation, nitrogen fixation, dynamic accumulation. If we can do all that to an organic system, then we can actually boost the organic productivity and generally take away little to no space that's currently being used as cultivation beds. Because generally, most of these organic farms are row cropping. They might be doing small hand-managed row cropping, but they're row cropping. Uh, and they might be doing quite a diverse production, 10 different kinds of lettuce, 20 different kinds of spinach, whatever. Or, you know, 10 different vegetables of seven different average varieties. And they're creating a lot of diversity. They're doing that so that they can move their harvest over a longer period of time, cut their, their loss uh, risk and things like that. And that's all great. But what if you were to talk to this farm and design in, instead of one place with a guild, 20 little polyculture guilds of long-term productive trees, little island clumps, and design each clump. So we're going to put an apple here, and we're going to gild it with a sub-understory tree like a pawpaw, and then we're going to come in and put in a blueberry and put in a blackberry, and then we're going to put in some perennial herbs and a dynamic accumulator in that system like comfrey. We're going to put these little clumps throughout the whole system. And the biodiversity that would add to the whole system would be massive. It's a retrofit. And it would actually be something that would be very interesting, not just to track for a season, but to track over years and years, like 10. And you'd have all this additional productivity and a fairly low investment. And if you talk to the farm owner and explain how this would happen and say, let me draw one for you. This would be a clump. This is where we would put it. This is where there would be a tree there. We would prune it so that it would never be bigger than this. That way it's not going to shade the beds. Um, we're going to go in here and, and drop this little understory tree on the north side of it. Um, and these are very close plantings, by the way, man. You know, way closer than you normally think of for orchard. And then we're going to drop in some comfrey here. That's going to be a dynamic accumulator. In addition to the comfrey, you're probably already growing. We'll mulch a lot of that back into the system. That'll create a nutrient cycle. Now, it's upgrade of these beds. So that nutrient cycle will actually start feeding nutrient down 
to the garden. And I'm saying draw this on a paper and explain it just the way I am now. We'll also bring in this, this, and this, and that'll be a guild. And we'll talk about guilds later um, with a different question. And, and we'll get that done. And we'll do 10 of these or 20 of these. There's many of these as you think you can get them on board with. And we want to do more than one because we want to have this, this massive result take place throughout your entire farm. Five years down the road, you're looking at an apple harvest, a blackberry harvest, a blueberry harvest, uh, a pawpaw harvest, uh, to what you're already doing. You don't have to give anything up for this. We just need to take these spaces that are currently not being occupied and occupy them with something. And we want, we don't want to put them all in one place. We want to clump them throughout the entire farm. And we want to gild around them additionally some perennial herbs and grasses and things like that that will kind of like get a little bushy because that'll be even more predator habitat. We want that predator habitat right next to the lettuce so that that the, 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 the lacewings have a place to overwinter, that we're going to put the comfrey in here so spiders have a, a place to overwinter. Spy, spiders overwinter more in comfrey than every other plant that there is if they have the choice. It's the most preferable plant for spiders to overwinter in is comfrey. So we want to have these clumps located close to these farms. That's how I'd approach it. And, and I'd be, I'd be, you know, a little bit, a little bit, um, aggressive, not the word, adventurous with it. I would be like, look, look what we could do. Look what we could do. Show them there's a video of an orchard that completely changed itself into a permaculture system up in Canada that I'll find for you guys. It's awesome. Show them that video. I'll make sure that's in the show notes today. That, that's the approach I would take. And I would say, you know, if you don't want to do 20 or even 10, give me four spots. Give me four spots. Give me the plantings, you know, and, and, and let me show you how I can do this for you. And, and I, you couldn't probably be in a more receptive environment for this than an organic farm. And, and, that, and that's how I would do it. I think that if you can draw, like you can point to the ground and say, we're talking about this area to this area. And again, it's not a very big circle or an oval or whatever shape's going to work for you. Then you draw that tree into that system, your understory, your bushes, you're explaining where everything goes. What that actually conveys to the landowner is you know what the hell you're talking about. And it, it, and it gives them an image of what it's going to look like. And they go, well, that's cool. I'd like that. That can't really hurt anything. I'm not doing anything with that spot right now. And if you can't really pepper this through the centers, work the edges with this. Even if this surrounded a field. I mean, the biodiversity, the nutrient cycling, the nutrient density this brings is massive. That's, that's what I would do. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Nathan, Texas. What happens when uh, all the Bitcoins are mined or whenever it becomes uh, pointless to mine them anymore? Because from what I understand, the, the coins that you receive is have every once in a while to keep people mining them so they're not all mined. But it's, when you get to a certain point, it won't be worth mining them. So people won't be doing it. And the people that are, from what I understand, the people that are mining them are are also running some of the they're keeping the Bitcoin system running by doing some of the transactions with the software so if nobody's mining them then I, I don't see how the system can work thanks uh, what you do you know that's a great question and the more I learn about Bitcoin the more I think about the day they say the last Bitcoin has been mined 
And I don't see it as a problem. Um, I see it actually as the brilliance of Bitcoin. So you're right on the mining. Like what they do with Bitcoin, it's, and it's not what they do. It's like predetermined. Like everything about Bitcoin was put down into the original code and is inalterable. And it's, it, it's coded to be such and including a definite number. There are X number of Bitcoins in existence, period. And this is not much different than something like, let's say, known gold reserves. So that includes the gold we have and then all the gold that we know exists that we believe can be mined. And it's a mining operation. It's one that doesn't harm the earth, though. I mean, I, I am digging Bitcoin more and more the more I, I learn about how it works and the fact that it's private. Um, for a lot of people that, that are so attached to gold and silver that have been screaming for years that currency production should be private, let me tell you something about the people behind Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies. They've done a better job at doing it than you have. They've made it transferable. They've made it to where it can be public or anonymous. They've made it easily understood. They've made it divisible. They've made it fungible. Fungible means it's exchangeable into other assets. So, well, you know, gold has never been worth nothing. Well, technically, since Bitcoin's been invented, it's never been worth nothing either. Could it crash one day? Sure. Will it? I don't think so. I don't know. But if you're using it as a currency, not as a major store of wealth, you don't really care. And I think that's a big thing people don't understand. It's about transferring wealth from one place to another in exchange of value. But what happens when the last Bitcoin gets mined? All the Bitcoins in existence become more valuable especially as more and more people want to use them, you have a supply and demand issue. Right now you have a ramping up demand. Bitcoin is becoming more and more accepted and more and more demand, where even people like me that were very skeptical for a very long time are going, I get this now. I'm not totally sold that it's the next wave of the future, that something better won't come along or something more secure or something safer or less uh, interferable with. I, I don't know, but this is damn good. Uh, I would actually tell you that I think Bitcoin, as a currency, as it grains broader acceptance, is actually better than any other currency in use by government on planet Earth. Period. Because I can send it to somebody in China or Australia anonymously with no fees and no oversight and no interference whatsoever, and both of us can use Bitcoin It's fungibility to convert it into whatever we want it to be on the other side of the transaction. And unlike a government currency that they can just make more of, you can't do it with Bitcoin. Right? You can the tulip bulb bush. I don't know if you guys know the tulips were used as a currency at one time. Bulbs. And it was in vogue and they were like, went astronomical for some variety. Well, the thing is, every time you plant one, it multiplies. With Bitcoin, you know there are X number. And when they're all mined, they're gone. So right now you have an increasing supply being mined and an increase, increasing demand uh, sort of keeping pace with each other. Actually, demand starting to outpace availability. And eventually you get to a point, like the caller said, this is actually very, very insightful, that even if there are any left, will it be worth mining them? Peak oil. Right? That's what the peak oil people tell us. That eventually there'll be some oil there, but the cost of extraction will exceed the cost of value. Probably true. So what Bitcoin was always designed to do is go through a major inflationary curve, a deflationary curve, a leveling, and a value stabilization. That, that was the design for the beginning. 
The people that did this understood money very well. I would have to say the people that built Bitcoin understood money better than I did. And that's, I know to you, you might not care, but for me to say that, it's a pretty, when I say someone understands money, not economics, just money better than I do, I'm giving them a pretty big compliment from my own ego, I guess. But I, I mean, I understand money to a level that I've talked to people that way more switched on with finance and analytics and things like that. I know money better than most people that I've spoken to about on the subject. Money itself is an idea, is a concept, is a symbol of energy, is an exchange of value. These people do better than I did. When the last Bitcoin gets mined, the other side of Bitcoin really becomes known for its brilliance. Bitcoin is what's known, and I don't know if anybody calls it this, but it's what I call it, a cap and fractionalize system. So, One of the things I've said before is that a government-issued fiat currency could work if it was capped. And if it was capped based on the economic value of the nation's economy. But that requires trusting a politician, which when I said it would work, I never said it would be done. I said it could work, and it would be up to the people to ensure that the government did it, but I had no way to make that happen other than a crystal clear formula. This is how we value an economy. This is how we cap a currency. Where this just says the hell with it. There is the cap. There's no screwing around with it. When it's the last, it's actually scarce in the number of units to the point of you can't make any more. So now the only thing you can do is start cutting it in smaller and smaller pieces, and it fractionalizes out to a certain number. So you can trade point zero 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 one of a Bitcoin. It's brilliant. It's an economic system that puts the power of exchange value and assignment of value in the hands of the people in the economy using it. They can't be jacked around with. Now, is there any way government can jack around with this? There's a lot of ways. And it may require greater and greater innovation on the part of the market to keep it, keep government's greedy little fingers out of the pie. But I believe that's happening. Things like zero coin now exist that I take a coin, a Bitcoin, When I send it to you. And it gets converted when I send it to zero coins. And it breaks it up into like thousands of pieces. And each piece takes a different path through the blockchain. And gets reassembled on the other end like a multiplexed phone call. And it's, you're done at that. That tracing that is just god awful hard. And I think the important thing. About an understanding about you know the anonymous transfer and things like that. The government will say this is all about people that want to avoid paying taxes and want to sell illegal commodities. No, it's about people that really want control over their own economic system. And I think the the, the value of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin is, listen, you don't need basically the the, the attitude of the, the Bitcoin market to the government needs to be you don't need to worry about this until Bitcoins become dollars. Right? If the person on some end of the transaction converts it to your money, to dollars, then, then you get to, you get to worry about that. You got your government money, or pounds, or euros, or whatever. Right? You get to worry about that. That's your money. This is our money. This is none of your freaking business. And the government will tell you it is their business, and they, they can pass laws to make it their business, and they can regulate, but they can only do so much. And the truth is, the more people that use this, the less control they have. And the more innovation that comes to the market, and the more different ways. And what's really necessary in Bitcoin is for 
these methodologies to be transparent to the buyer. So that the seller for themselves chooses the methodologies by which they maintain anonymity to any third party. So that if I wanted to, to route my bitcoins through zero coins, back through, and then zero coins into Litecoins, Litecoins into Bitcoins, Bitcoins back into zero coins, and then zero coins back into Bitcoins. And I wanted to do that. All the customer has to do is click buy. And buddy, they're going to do it. They're, they're, this thing is, this is a done deal. But what happens when the last Bitcoin gets mined? The Bitcoin becomes more valuable every time one more person wants to use Bitcoin. That's what happens. And you have no problem because of the fractionalization capabilities to where we can use a very, very small piece of a Bitcoin to represent a penny. I really, the more I look at it, the more brilliant I think it is. I really do. And again, those of you that are gold and silver bugs, and I love gold and silver, I will not change my ratio of 5 to 10% of your wealth in precious metals. I will not say that Bitcoin is the thing to buy to become a millionaire. I'm not a dumbass. I don't say stupid stuff. But when it comes to the system itself, how the system works, it's brilliant. And it is economic liberty. Because the truth is, if you want a free market, you need a free exchange of value. And that you and I, dear listeners, should be able to exchange value based on what we decide that value is, not what a third party tells us that value is. And the day that Bitcoin really becomes the massive steel hammer is when people stop caring about its conversion value in dollars or euros or Australian dollars. That's a long way off. But when things begin priced in Bitcoin completely independent of anything outside of the Bitcoin economy, when people start viewing Bitcoin the way that they do a euro. If the euro goes up or down in relation to the dollar on a daily basis in France, no one really cares. The shop owner doesn't run out and change the price of a slice of cheese in France because it went up or down against the dollar. Just as the guy that sells eggs in Vermont doesn't change the price of his eggs in dollars because the dollar fluctuated against the Canadian dollar or the peso or the euro. It stays stable within itself. And the truth is that can happen with Bitcoin. When, there, when you get to a point where just about anything you want to buy anywhere is available in Bitcoin, and you can do a Bitcoin-to-Bitcoin -Bitcoin transaction privately and independently, Why do you care what a dollar is? Why would you care? And when they say, well, you can't put Bitcoins in the bank, why would you want to? Why would you want to put your Bitcoins in the bank? The whole point is to ignore the banking system, to ignore the Fed. I don't need you anymore. Goodbye. And it's coming. Now, what is the, what is the risk? I believe the United States government the collective European governments, and possibly the governments of Asia, such as China and, and, and other Asian nations, will do all that they can to prevent this from happening because it does represent economic liberty at their expense. That's the risk. I don't believe the system itself, if left alone by government, has much risk in it, the more I examine it. But when the last Bitcoin gets uh, mined, Mining ceases, 
and the economy stabilizes. And the only thing that then affects the value of an individual Bitcoin, more people in the economy will increase the value of Bitcoin. Uh, you, will, you will end up in a, a deflationary economy in a positive way, meaning that money held over time, as long as the economy itself grows, will become more powerful. And that you could say, at that point, you could save money independent of a bank and know that it will hold or increase its value over time. So you stop worrying about inflation because you can't produce anymore. So basic inflation is impossible. Individual inflation, itemized inflation is possible. Definitely. Um, a massive decline in the population would create inflation. A massive decline. Now here's the, here's the inflationary risk of Bitcoin. We get to a point where it really starts to stabilize, becomes rock solid. Somebody else comes out with a competing currency that goes and catches on in vogue and is seen as advantageous over Bitcoin, and members of the Bitcoin economy begin to exit, reducing the total number of the population in there. Boy, I'm not worried about that right now. I'm not worried about that right now. I'm worried about government right now. And if that happens, so be it. That way we keep innovating what we think of as currency. That way we keep innovating how we as individuals stay sovereign from the state. The biggest thing the state does to prevent my sovereignty is to regulate how you and I exchange value. That is the number one way they do it. Love Bitcoin. Uh, we will be accepting it soon, one way or another. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Mark from New Jersey. Uh, talking about ammunition, I bought some 223 the other day, and it was um, metal jacket. It was uh, steel jackets, not brass. Can you give me the uh, advantages, disadvantages uh, to such a shell casing? Thank you very much. Love the show. Bye. Um, I, I think what you're saying, and if I'm wrong, you can call me back and I'll do a follow-up, is it was steel-cased versus brass-cased. Uh, most ammo that's called steel jacketed is actually not steel jacketed. And there is a such thing as steel core ammo and all, but you're looking at a full metal jacket versus a, a you know, a semi jacketed, uh, expanding point bullet there. And I don't think that's what you're asking about. I think what you're asking about is the case itself. So that's how I'm going to answer the question. Steel case versus brass case. Um, so all we're talking about then is the, the case itself. So that when you fire, The, the cartridge, primer goes off, powder goes off, bullet goes down range, and then there's this thing that ejects out. And then what ejects out, there's a primer, which actually is the detonator, if you want to think about it that way, and the casing that holds the powder, and the powder's burned up and gone. That case being steel versus brass. What are the advantages and disadvantages? The primary advantage of steel cases is, from a manufacturer's standpoint, they're cheaper to produce so you can get the ammunition for less. That's that's about the only real advantage I personally see. Um, steel cases packaged the way that they are in some European block, uh, Eastern Bloc countries. Still, um, you could make a case that they would be more durable, uh, especially if they're lacquered. Uh, but really, ammunition needs to be kept clean and dry, um, and temperature stable. And brass versus steel in a clean, dry, temperature stable environment. You know, if brass is going to corrode, steel is going to rust. Uh, I'll put it to you that way. So I don't really see much of a durability from storage standpoint. There is durability in the hardness of the case, and a steel case is harder. 
But I actually feel that if, if anything, it leads to more disadvantages than advantages. The number one disadvantage to me personally is I'm a reloader. So when I go to the range and I fire 100 rounds, I pick up all my brass and I bring it home. And I always look around to see if any other useful brass is laying around, hasn't been stepped on and too messed up yet. And pick that up and I bring it home and it gets a primer knocked out of it. It gets, you know, polished up and it gets chamfered and reshaped and reloaded and it goes back to the range again. So with steel ammunition, it's not that it can't be done. It just can't be done effectively or well. Because the steel's harder, it would be very, very hard on your reloading dies. That's uh, number one. Uh, and number two, it won't quite form right for you uh, with standard, you know, reloading equipment that we use at home. And a lot of it also is primed in a way that makes it difficult to deprime if it's basically military ammunition being sold in the civilian market, which quite not all, but quite a bit of it is. So it's not good for reloading. Just just, just to say it's not reloadable. Uh, and, and again, somebody will say, well, it could be done, and it could, but it's from a general day-to-day -day use standpoint, it's not reloadable ammunition for the ho hobbyist reloader. So that's the big disadvantage. The other thing is people say it's dirtier. Now, this is true and not true. It's not dirty. Like when you buy Wolf Steel Case 223 or 7.62 or whatever, it's not dirty in of itself. So let me put, you know what we're going to do? Because we're selling, you know, it's a Russian company. We're going to sell this to Americans. We're going to put shitty powder in here that's really dirty. That's, it's not what happens. The steel case is harder. When you chamber around in any weapon and fire it, there's tremendous pressure outward against the case, and it pushes the case wall against the chamber, and it creates a seal on that chamber. And this is one of the reasons reloaded ammo generally is more accurate if we neck size only and we put it back in the same weapon. So the brass expands, and it, 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 it unexpands just a little tiny bit so that you can get the, the round to eject, right? But it expands and forms an exact duplicate of the chamber, right? If we're doing a wildcatting cartridge where we've just changed the shoulder angle a little bit, We could actually, let's say we, we take a 30.06 to a 30.06 Ackley, improved, where we take the angle of the shoulder and we move it forward a little bit. What we can do is take a regular 30.06 cartridge and load it, a, a light load, load it into the Ackley chamber and fire form it. And when you fire it, the shoulder will expand up against the new thing. And when we reload it, we only neck size. So we only resize the neck. And then we get a perfect fit. We can do that with a Wildcat, or we can do it with a regular round, as long as it goes back into the same weapon. So if you're neck, neck uh, sizing only, uh, .30.06 out of your Remington 700 uh, rifle, you need to label it as such. That, that ammo now goes back to that weapon. And that's what brass does. It's soft. And it forms to that chamber very, very well. It's part of why it works so well. Steel's a little harder. So when you fire it, it expands, it seals up against there. It's not dangerous. It's not going to blow up in your face or anything. But it doesn't seal quite as tight as the brass because it's harder and the pressure isn't sufficient to really... T and you get a little bit more gas and powder residue back into your chamber and behind your bolt face and things like that over time. So when you fire 100 rounds of each... Your weapon will probably function perfectly. I've seen steel-cased ammo function with reliability up into the hundreds of rounds as reliability as brass. But the weapon will definitely be dirtier. A dirty weapon is less reliable. And over time, you would say that the, the brass ammo is more reliable than the steel ammo. But 
unless you're getting the firefights firing a thousand rounds or more, you probably won't ever care or notice. You just have a little bit dirtier weapon, a little bit more maintenance, and it's not because the ammo is poor quality. It's just that that steel doesn't seal quite as well. Those are the big differences, and it's it's not really a hill of beans. People say they're more likely to wear out the components of your weapon. I've said this before. There's there's very few products being manufactured today to the tolerances uh, and to the strength of modern firearms. Modern firearms are probably the best uh, quality manufactured item in the world today. Uh, and old firearms, too. Like the old Mosin and the Gons have been made around 1900 that are still in service and have seen thousands of rounds of the steel core stuff, including corrosive primers and at one time corrosive powders. And they're still working and they're still functioning. Um, you do see steel ammo more common from, you know, so former Soviet bloc nations. And part of the reason is the AK platform. The AK platform is a very strong platform, but the tolerances are, are far less than something like the AR platform. So if you pick up an AK-47 and you shake it, you, it, it moves, it rattles around, it's a little bit looser. It doesn't, it's not that it doesn't lock up tight, but the bolt itself, when it comes back, it, it has more play. And so this is why you can take an AK and dip it in mud, and it'll, it generally will function where an AR will start binding up. So the AR has a tighter tolerance. It's generally a more accurate, more precision weapon. But the AK has these greater tolerances. So the somewhat truth to the steel core, it's not steel, steel case ammo, being a little less reliable is mitigated by the weapons that these things are fired in. You know, just a huge lug brute force extractor of an old Mosin bolt gun or the much easier to play around with, you know, as far as its action AK. Uh, if it can handle the mud, it can handle the gunk from the ammo. But the ammo's not dirty. There's nothing wrong with it. It's an economic thing for storing large amounts of ammo in case or for just target practicing and plinking and things like that. Nothing wrong with it. As a reloader, though, I don't want it. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Mike down here in southern Louisiana. Uh, I have a question for expert council member Darby Simpson. My question is, what are some sizing and scaling considerations for the small-scale homesteader when buying an energizer for an electric fence used in rotational grazing? Particularly, what kind of power is reasonably necessary? Lastly, should I return a six-joule charger that produces 10,000 volts in exchange for a cheaper secondary system? Here are some additional details. I started doing rotational grazing with boar goats with a solar setup suggested and purchased at Kenco that uses a one-joule sap energizer. This was the cheapest dual-purpose energizer, and it produces 5,000 volts. I'm only using a single 168-foot net, but I have three others that I'll use uh, to either increase the area or create more moving paddocks with other animals using the same system. When the goats first arrived, one of them, I believe, panicked and jumped the fence twice which made me think that I needed a bigger charge. I read online some people prefer 7,000 or greater volts with gold, goats. So I panicked and purchased a 6-joule Staphix charger because it says it can produce 10,000 volts. Over a week has passed, and I have had zero issues and don't really think the goats would do that again, which makes me rethink the purchase. Just for the record, the battery was fully charged, everything was working as it should, and the fences were taut. The goat more or less crashed through the top portion of the fence when jumping. I also used the voltmeter, so everything checked out fine. I'm contemplating returning the energizer to produce another smaller charger 
and use the money to buy another solar setup to have two. Two is one, one is not. I've also considered keeping the charger, moving it indoors, and using it as a more central system controlling possible semi-permanent paddocks around the property. But then again, I could do the same thing by buying a cheaper one. So what are the real-world, small-scale considerations when sizing an energizer for a rotational setup? Thanks a lot. Well, I know almost nothing about electric fences and fence chargers other than if you play with them long enough, they zap you and it hurts, uh, and that they function and they work. You get into technical specifications and specifics and what's best, I don't know. So let's hear from Darby Simpson, expert council member, on this uh, very interesting question. Hi, Jack. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer Mike's question from southern Louisiana about how to size and scale an energizer for use in a rotational grazing system. Um, Mike's got a lot of stuff going on here, so we'll try and, and work through it as best we can. And really what it boils down to is he needs to know what kind of power is really needed to keep his boar goats in his fence. Now, let me preface this by saying a couple of things. Number one, I absolutely love Kenco Fence Company. I recommend them to just about anybody I talk to, and I also absolutely love StayFix products. I personally have a StayFix uh, X6i Energizer here on my farm that I use for all of our high tensile fencing as well as our portable fencing, and I've been extremely thrilled with it. We've had it for almost two years, and it's given us zero issues. So I think StayFix is a really sound brand to use. The second thing I want to say Mike, is that I have absolutely zero experience with goats. So please take everything I'm about to give you with a grain of salt. Uh, the first thing we need to know about energizers is that as a rule, one joule of output energy will power approximately six miles of single-strand fence uh, under no-load conditions. And of course, that simply does not exist, especially with the portable netting that you're using. I've personally owned and used that on my own farm. I like it, but man, does it really suck an energizer down. You, you get really high weed and grass loads on that stuff, and I don't know what your pastures look like there or the exact kind of areas that you're uh, moving that through, but if it's brushing up against trees and shrubs and weeds and dirt and everything else, it really takes a toll on the energizer. So that's something we really need to keep in mind. The other thing you need to understand when you're looking at energizers is there's going to be two joule ratings on those. I just want to make sure that you're looking at the right one. There will be a stored and an output. And we really don't care about the stored. What we care about is the output. So just be sure that when you're, you're selecting these and looking at them that you're looking at the output. And uh, that's going to translate into how many volts we're putting into the fence. Now, with any livestock, I personally want a minimum of four to 5,000 volts on my fence at all time. I, I like to have more than that, especially with pigs. Um, I think with something like goats, just my inclination says that we would want as much voltage on the fence as we can absolutely get just to make sure that we keep those critters in the fence. And here's the other thing you got to think about. What kind of critters are you keeping out of your fence? That's important, too. Just, not just keeping the goats in, like, okay, well, maybe one of them did get scared and crashed through it, and he's going to stay in from now on, but that doesn't mean that it's going to keep a predator out. I don't know what kind of predation you have down there, but that's just something I wanted to mention and wanted to make you aware of, something you need to think about. Also, you need to think about if you start hooking up multiple sets of this fence, you said you have four, that's really going to put a load on that energizer, so please keep that in mind as well. 
it could really start to um, you know bring that down. Now, do I think a a stay fix uh, six joule charger is too big? Maybe it might be. If I was going to go down. I'd go down to a 3. I would not drop down to a 1. I think that's too small. If the maximum voltage output you were getting out of that thing in ideal conditions was one piece of fence that's 5,000 volts, I don't think that's big enough. Um, it, like I said, you've got some different things going on here. You talked about, well, I, I could move one inside as a central system, or I could get two and have a backup. I personally like having a backup, especially if one of them is going to be plugged in to the grid. If it's you know, you're using 110 volt AC plug-in, and uh, that's how that's getting its power, and the power goes out. I, I love having a solar backup. Uh, personally, I've got the PRS 50 and the PRS 100 from Premier Fence Company. Those are my backup chargers that we keep around here in case the power does go down, and I don't want to turn on the the, uh, the generator to power the main system. Um, that's something to keep in mind. So, yeah, I think having two is one and one is none when it comes to energizers is really key. Um, I, I don't, I just don't know what to tell you as far as voltage that you want on your fence for your goats, but I, I feel like 5,000 is really low. That's, that's my advice. So, I guess in the end, what would I do? Would I return the six? I, I if I was going to keep the six, I'd put it in a central location indoors. And if you're thinking about running high tensile fence around the perimeter of your property, if you're thinking about maybe just putting uh, buried um, wire around your property and then going up to uh, cutout switches in various places so you can tie into that, I think if I was going to keep the six, that's what I would do. I think that's a little bit big maybe to be using uh, as a just a truly portable energizer. <clears throat> I'd probably take a look at that, that three-joule energizer and... Um, Maybe consider having the three jewel and a portable solar, uh, like the PRS 50 or the PRS 100 from Premier as a backup. I like those pretty well. It's um, it's about like having a little briefcase that you just tote around, and um, yeah, those those have really performed well on our farm. The other thing I want to mention too, um, if you do put that that six that Stayfix six in a central location, be sure and get the grounding rod system from Kenco Fence Company. That's one of the best purchases I made. I think it's like 35 or 40 bucks, and you get three five-foot ground rods and all the wiring you need to properly uh, ground that. And if, if you don't have a good ground, you're not going to have good voltage going out to the, the line. So just something else to uh, keep in mind there. Um, I, I think you're on the right track, though. I think Stayfix is a great brand, like I said, and I really can't fault you for, for using that. And, again, if I was going to drop down, I, I would go to the 3 and not the 1. And I, I'd look at that uh, that portable solar system from Premier. They are not cheap, though. The, one of those is going to cost you almost as much as that 6-dual charger uh, from uh, Kincove cost by itself. So hopefully that's helpful to you, Mike. I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for you, but <clears throat> I think you're on the right track to not have the, the one jewel stay fixed charger. I just think that's too small. So uh, thanks for uh, calling this question in for me. And Jack, thanks for kicking it over to me. Uh, to learn more about me, please visit my website at darbysimpson.com. You can sign up for free blog updates uh, that I send out that talks about all kinds of things in raising pastured poultry, 
pork and beef. Also wanted to mention that we just finished our first Midwest Sustainable Education Conference this past weekend here in Indianapolis. We had over 50 students come out to that. About half the crowd was from the Survival Podcast, and I just wanted to say thanks to all you guys for coming out and supporting us. We had an absolute blast. We had some really great feedback from the students. Uh, We had a lot of fun hanging out and uh, drinking some beers and watching some football this weekend. And uh, you know what? You guys have asked for more, and we are already getting busy putting together another conference that will be taking place sometime this spring, probably in late March or early April. And in the very near future, out at our website at midwestsustainable.org, we're going to have a survey out there with uh, the different things that we can bring to you and teach to you. And we want to make this interactive. We want to know what you want to learn more about. So please look for that survey soon. Go out, fill that out if you're interested in coming out uh, to this uh, this educational workshop and let us know what you want to learn. We will get the uh, the next class scheduled and out there soon, so please check back at MidwestSustainable.org to learn more. Thanks a bunch. Take care. I promise you that that was way more detailed and way more accurate and way more usable than any answer that I would have ever come up with. It's why we have an expert panel. I've got another expert panel question now for Stephen Harris. Um, I'm just going to play the question, immediately play Steve's answer to it. Remember, you can ask a question to the members of our expert council. You can find them listed in the show notes of every show at the bottom, who they are, their websites, what they do. Call the number 866-65-THINK, again, 866-65-THINK, and say, Jack, this question is for expert council member so-and-so. My question is, and then ask your question, and then to to really kind of kick it over the top and make it likely that your call will get used, uh, email me immediately and say, Jack, I just called for expert council member, fill in the blank, from phone number XYZPDQ, and my question is on this. And it'll make it more likely I'll dig it out early and get it to them and, and get it back to me. I got some questions in to Brian Black. He is at IT, uh, he, he's at, always at ITS. He is at the SHOT Show in, uh, in Vegas this week, so we may not hear from him for a week or two digging out from under that um, mole hill that turns into a mountain when you go out there. Um, but otherwise, you know, get a call in and, and I'll get it out to the expert council members. Some of these guys don't always get back to me. Um, but the people that always do, Keith Snow, Darby Simpson, and Stephen Harris, and coincidentally, to you other council members, they get more questions. That's probably a reason. Anyway, here's a question for Steve, Steve's answer, and then I'll be back with you. Hi, Jack. My question is, can I connect a home battery backup system to my home wiring using a transfer switch or suicide cables similar to way that you would connect a generator? I'd like to do it mostly for the convenience of not having to run extension cords all over the place but I've read conflicting opinions about the way that the inverters are wired differently than a generator, and that could could cause problems with the inverter or cause a shock hazard at the battery system. Uh, money's a factor, so if there's a way to do it, but it costs an arm and a leg, I'll just keep it simple. Thanks for any advice you might have. Yes, you can. This is Steve Harris for the expert panel calling in to answer the question about backfeeding into your house with an inverter. It's the same as backfeeding into a house with a generator. Inverter, generator, doesn't matter. The techniques are the same. Now, the thing is, this is the short answer I'm giving you here because the long answer is in the show I did with Jack called Generator Show Number 2 at www.solar1234.com. The thing is, before you backfeed your house, and it can be quite dangerous, okay? But like I said, in the show, I cover the safe, the unsafe ways, the legal and illegal ways of 
feeding power into the house so you can make your own decision on what you want to do. Now, the basics are you must always turn the breakers off. Your main breakers, okay? The, all the individual breakers stay on, but the main breakers got to be turned off. And then you can backfeed into the house from an outlet in a suicide cable. That's a cable that will shock you if the power is on, if you touch the prongs on the end. It's got a mail on both ends. One goes into the inverter, one goes into the house. Generally, you plug them in, and then you turn on the inverter. You don't plug it into the inverter, turn it on, and then plug into the house. The thing is, with this method, you only power half the box. Because the box is split into two phases, L1 and L2, and a neutral. So it's called split phase power. So just by backfeeding, only half your outlets will work. Now, you read conflicting opinions on the Internet. Really? <laughs> Imagine that. Um, there is no real shock hazard at the battery bank if you're backfeeding. I mean, if you got the power on and power, you know, if the power comes on and you didn't turn off your main breaker, well, you didn't turn off your main breakers. One, you're feeding power through all the lines and you're a hazard to any alignment. Two, if the lines are shorted anywhere from a storm or whatever, you're feeding into that short. Even though it's miles away, you're feeding into that short and you'll either have the inverter turn off for safety reasons or you blow the power transistors in the inverter and you'll have smoke come out of it. Of course, if you do this and the power comes back on, it'll just fry everything in the inverter. Uh, trust me, I've seen it happen. So those are some of the cautions for you. Um, the only real way to do this is to have an electrician come out and look at your box and have them put in a transfer switch and or an interlock switch, which prevents, prevents the transfer switch from being operated until the interlock is moved and you've turned off the main breakers. He can have the inverter power both halves of the house. It is possible to hook up a 120-volt inverter to both sides of the box to power the entire house. Now, you're not going to get 240 out of this. You're just getting 120 over the entire box. Now, the way I backfeed and have backfed before, and I'm still not recommending you do it, is I go around and I unplug everything in the house. Okay, unplug everything, refrigerator, stove, washer, dryer, microwave, uh, TV, lamps, everything. I unplug everything in the house. And then I plug in the inverter into the into one of the wall sockets, and then I turn on the inverter, and I backfeed half the house. And then I go plug in the light that I want. Then I turn on the TV. Then I turn on the radio. And only then do I do this. Now, the thing is, there are parasitic loads throughout your house. Smoke detectors, night lights, a smart stove, smart washing machines, and your TV. These are all really on to some degree and will take power from the inverter and the battery. These things aren't truly off, but they're sitting there on, waiting for you to press the on button on your remote so they can then fully power up. So the only real way to do this is with an electrician, and that will cost money, probably $500 or more for a switch and the electrician's labor. This is why I would stick with the advice to run extension cords, and I'll tell you how I do it. I think you'll like this. First, I run a 50-foot extension cable upstairs from the battery bank, and this is, as I said, this is a 50-foot cable. It goes into the kitchen. 
And then in the kitchen, I put some of the orange three-way tea adapters. It plugs into, you know what they look like. They plug into the extension cord, and they give you three outlets. And it's one solid piece of heavy rubber plastic. You can plug in as many tea adapters as you want. You plug in one, you got three uh, open sockets. Plug in two, you got five. Plug in three, you got seven. And this is a handy way of running power through the house. Now into the tea adapter in the kitchen, I then plug in a 25-foot cord, extension cord, and I run that to the living room where I have one or two or three orange three-way tea adapters. And then I run another 25-foot cord to the bedroom where I have another set of orange three-way tea adapters. This way you have short extension cords just snaking through the house instead of being all over, coiled up, and everything else, and multiple runs from the generator. This is a smart way to do it. Now, into these tea adapters, okay, I plug in some 15-foot white two-wire lightweight extension cords like the ones you use for lamps. They are at Walmart, and they're only two or three bucks each. And like I said, they're thin and lightweight, and they're for moderate loads. These I then run to my lamps or my TV or my radio or a scanner or other things I want to have powered, whether it's in the kitchen, in the living room, or in the bedroom. So that is a smart way of running extension cords through the house. You don't need to have one running to each area. You don't have to plug them into, you just plug them into each other like a train and have one smart cord running through the house and branching off with the T adapters and lightweight extension cords. So I hope this gives you some ideas. If you want to see the T adapters and everything, uh, what I'm talking about, they are on www.battery1234.com. Scroll partway down the page, you'll see the big orange T adapter, and then you'll know what I'm talking about. These are at Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, online, you name it. You can get them anywhere. Now, all of my shows I've done for all you new people, if you like what I'm talking about, are at www dot solar s o l a r one two three four dot com. These are all my shows with Jack, including Generator Show number two, where I cover all the legal and illegal and the safe and unsafe ways of feeding electricity into your house from a generator. I talk about all the ways so you realize what it is when you see it, and you'll know the dangers or the advantages, and you can make a decision for yourself if it's that important for you to do it this way. Or you can take my advice and have it done before a disaster the proper way. And hey, I have an all-new 1234 website for you. It is radios1234.com. I have everything communications there. Trust me, you know me. Almost everything communications is on that website. It's like taking a communications class just reading my comments. That is radios1234.com. And you can also find all my 1234 websites at www.steven, S-T-E-V-E-N, 1234.com. Thanks, guys. Call in some more questions, and I'll answer for you next week. See ya. Bye. Hey, Jack. Jake Robinson from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, also known as Prepper Survivor on the Zello Network. My question is, is the Freeman movement legitimate? And the reason I ask, I was listening to John Bush uh, interview and then watched his reality TV show on YouTube. When the video was over, there was other several other related videos about sovereign citizens. 
some were traffic stops where people were using, uh, claiming the common law or natural law um, superseded the statute law that the police enforcement officer was using. And it says here in Wiki, Freeman on the land are a loose group of people who claim that all statute law is contractual and that such a claim a law is applicable applicable only if the individual consents to be governed by it. And so they go through and talk about this birth certificate and you have all caps name and that you're a legal fiction versus your human being and that a person is a legal fiction with the court system, et cetera, et cetera. And before, and I'm doing my research, so I'm not asking you to do my research, but before I go much further down this rabbit hole, it's very intriguing that it also seems like it could be bunk or BS or a conspiracy theory or urban legend, or it could be the real thing. It's just the cutting edge of how people will uh, opt out of the system, the government system, and actually be able to um, avoid the hassle and oppression that you may get from your local police enforcement officer versus the peace uh, peace officer. So, what do you think about that? What's your do you maybe you're ahead of the curve on and you know a little bit about it or if not, uh, what do you think about this movement and uh, is, is it something we should embrace or something we should steer clear of? Uh, one other thing, my wife happens to be the Register of Deeds of our county and that's where a lot of these sovereign citizens come in and file uh, deeds on their property where they t- try to take over the deed from a bank and she has had contact from the FBI on several of these issues where they were asking her to provide evidence in court cases against these sovereign citizens they were treating treating them as criminals so of course the state would never want to give up the power so I would see why they would do that so again I've had personal experience through my wife on this and it's Again, it's intriguing, but it is kind of the back one. Anyway, thanks uh, for the great show. Keep up the great work, and look forward to your answer. Um, there's going to be some people pissed off at me, but it's complete, total, 100% bullshit from a standpoint of being in any way legally enforceable. Now, uh, let me let me couch that with my view of the general philosophy. I think in general... The majority of the philosophy is accurate. I think there's actually a lot of um, case law and research that you can go into and demonstrate that these people have a point, but it doesn't matter if the police and the court system are, and the jury system are all going to go, you're freaking nuts. You were speeding. Here's your ticket. Pay your ticket. You didn't pay your ticket. You're going to jail to pay for your ticket. Or, no, it's not okay for you to grow marijuana in your basement because you're not allowed to because the law says so. And it doesn't matter that you say you're a freeman on the land. That's what's going to happen. And, you know, it's not okay for you to have, a you know, uh, uh, 15 slave wives that, that can't leave your property that you say are contractually obligated to stay there whether they want to or not. And the reason I go to, like, extremes is because there are people in this movement that are just basically saying, I can drive without a license. And there's people that think they can break, you know, felony-level laws with this. And what they're actually stating is that a, a person in this nation is not subject to to any law, and then some that are a little bit more reasonable are saying to certain laws, like tax law, or like the restriction of freedom of movement that they see that a driver's license applies to them. And again, I'm not saying they don't have a point in any of these areas, but no one gives a shit. 
No one gives a shit in the enforcement level. And, for instance, let me explain where I agree with, with the Freeman on the land on a, on, a, on a technical issue. I believe that the United States income tax on individual income, not corporate income, but individual income, is completely 100% unconstitutional. And I believe there are actually Supreme Court decisions that support that contention that you can cite, and it doesn't freaking matter because if you don't pay your taxes, if you get audited, if you get prosecuted, and if you use that defense, there's a 9,999 chance out of 10,000 that you are going to lose and you are going to go to jail. Period. Done. Right? And if you, if you want to know what happens when you take it and try to turn it into a business and tell other people they can do it and set it up and do it for them, ask Peter Schiff where his dad is. It would be prison. Okay? Now, do I think he deserves to be there? No. Not really. I don't think he deserves to be there from a standpoint of, I don't see the victim, so... Right? Um, the reason they were able to do it is because he set it up for other people, and they say you've inherently harmed this person by giving them false advice, etc., and convincing them that they were able to do this when they weren't. Um, but what I mean, I don't think he belongs there because I, I think he's right. I think the income tax is unconstitutional. But I also think that you have to pick your battles and not be stupid. And... I think that if you get involved in this whole Freeman crap, and there's other things that do the same thing. There's some star child bullshit that some guy that came to one of our workshops was talking about. I don't know what the hell it was, but it was something he talked to Joe about. Um, something to do with space. I don't know. And I don't want to insult the guy because he came here and he was a student and all, but I don't really, I didn't really pay attention to what Joe was saying, but it was some weird thing that, you know, you don't have to have a license or whatever. I'm sorry. I don't care what you think should be the case. You have to balance what should be and what is. And there are certain realities, and these beliefs that you can just abstain from paying taxes or whatever. Uh, if you're going to abstain from paying taxes, then you better do it by hiding your income. I'm not advising you to, but I'm telling you, if you're going to get away with it, That's how you're going to get away with it. If you're going to file a piece of paper and tell the IRS, I'm not paying because the Constitution says I, doesn't ha I don't have to, the only way you're not going to go and in, in get in deep trouble for that is if you don't have enough income to pay taxes anyway. And a lot of these people that hold themselves up as examples to this and say, see, I've been doing this for years and I don't pay any taxes, are living in a little trailer in the desert somewhere and don't have any dadgone income. So, of course, they're not paying any taxes. I mean, that's, that's the other side. The IRS isn't going to come after you if they know they're going to lose. And they know if they go after somebody and they go, we, we can show this individual had income of like $1,500 last year and owes us nothing. In fact, if he had filed his taxes and he's under the income threshold to even have to do so, but had he under earned income credit, we would owe him money. So there's no benefit to you know prosecuting this guy. Right? But if you're sitting there with a $100,000 income going, I'm filing as a freeman of the land and I'm not paying taxes and I don't have capital letters on my documents anymore and therefore you can't touch me, oh, they will touch you. And they may put you in a place, unfortunately, because of the way we run our prison system where some other people will touch you in ways you don't want. Again, I'm not saying they're right, meaning the state and the authority. I'm not saying it should be that way. I'm saying that you always have to balance, and there's another call that's going to get to the heart of this toward the end today, what should be with what is. 
And this is where I have some issues with a lot of my anarchist friends who say, well, it should be this and it should be that. So just, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but that's not what is. And on some level, we have to work with the system that we have today and work for the ideals of the system we want to see tomorrow. We have to balance that. Um, this kind of thinking will get you hurt. And there are people in this movement that are very peaceful, going about this the best way they can and fighting the system and Godspeed to them. And there are people in this movement that are violent individuals. And they are very much the minority. And pukes, like the Southern Poverty Law Center, have tried to identify everybody in this movement with this very small minority. And I've always said you can't do that. There's a very tiny minority of priests who molest children. There's a very tiny minority of school teachers, right, who molest children. So you, you don't use that to say school te teachers and priests molest children. That's asinine thinking. But our government will take any group they don't like and vilify them with a, a, a minority of one they'll do it with. So linking yourself to here is also painting yourself by this broad-stroked marketing brush Um And I understand why somebody would do it anyway and say, that's not the truth. And I'll, I'll talk about that a, a bit later, too, where there's certain places you have to draw the line and say, you know what? You're not changing what the word means. I do it with survivalist. I refuse to not call what I do modern survivalism. I don't care that you're painting the brush of survivalism with crazy people in camo. I do it through demonstration. But I'm also not violating the law. And I'm not out saying I'm, I'm consciously violating the law and I dare you to do anything about it because then you become an example and they're happy to make one of you. And there's a lot of that in that that space. So I actually, my problem with this whole Freeman of the Land sovereign citizen movement is I think they've ruined what I call sovereign citizenry and individual sovereignty, which I'm very much a proponent of. And individual sovereignty is I have individual sovereignty. I am a sovereign being. I have a right to decide what goes into my body. You do not. I have a right to decide who I who I associate with. You don't have a right to force me to associate with. And all power in a republic should originate with the sovereign individual, and we give power on loan to government. But the sovereignty lies with the citizen. That's what real individual sovereignty in this society today is to me. I would stay away from stuff like this. I think that if you want to assert your sovereignty... Go out and build individual liberty, you know, and, and ignore the state. Don't provoke the state. And if you think, if you honestly think you're going to get away with driving without a license, especially if you're pulled over for a traffic infraction or if you're involved in a wreck and that you're going to go to a court of law and that you're going to tell that court of law you're not required to have a driver's license and you're going to win that case, good freaking luck. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Jeff from Mesquite, Texas. Right to the question. Do you have a good method to shred leaves? I've collected about 100 bags of leaves from around the neighborhood, and I'm going to use them for making compost and mulch. I ran over about 25 bags worth with the push mower to get the first compost pile going with one bag of fresh grass clippings to get the right carbon-to-protein ratio, but it's not a long-term solution for so much volume. I thought about a mobile shredder vac that would help me collect and shred leaves at the same time. 
Also, this might open a business opportunity to help clean up people's yards in the fall while keeping the debris for my own use. What I found is price range of about $1,600 down to $500 for these types of units, and some even claim to have small brush shipping abilities. This is way out of my short-term price range, though. Harbor Freight carries a stationary 6.5-horsepower chipper shredder for around $325 with a coupon that I found some positive feedback on but no real good reviews yet, but that's still a large investment in equipment. I've also got a decent amount of brush and branches I'd like to get broken down for mulch as well. I'm hoping you may have a creative idea that I haven't thought of yet. Thank you. Well, hey, Jeff, man. Nice to hear from you, bud. Um, I've got a couple opinions on this. Number one, for just composting, you don't need to shred leaves. Now, there's no doubt you'll get kind of a better result, especially if you're only doing grass and leaves with shredded leaves. Because what can happen with leaves, if they're not shredded, is they're big and they overlap like shingles and they stick together with moisture and they're a little bit harder to turn, and they bind up, and they don't break down as well. But sooner or later, everything rots, and everything breaks down. And if you take a walk in the forest, um, you know, a hardwood forest, in November, you, you'll see some places you're walking through leaf litter up to your thigh, and when you go back in the spring, you're not. So that that tells you that systems understand what to do, and and and, and nature breaks down leaves. So it's not necessary. Um, It also depends on what you're going to do. If you're straight composting, I can see the desire for it. But if you're just getting, I mean, I don't know, you don't have that big a piece of property, so you're talking about a lot of compost. You're talking about many, many cubic yards. So if you're going to get into the composting business and say I'm doing locally produced compost and selling it, well, I get it. Um, for your property size, I don't know that I get it. Maybe you have a reason. that That's fine. I'm not telling you what to do. Just Because this is how I use leaves. We pick up leaves. We sheet mulch with them. We lay them down. We lay another layer of mulch on top of them. We'll lay down a layer of compost or dirt. We'll lay down a layer of leaves. We'll lay down another layer of compost or dirt. We'll lay down a layer of straw. We'll lay down a layer of wood chips, and we plant into that. Um, and when you use leaves that way, they break down well. If you're using them for more like mulch, and they are what you see on the surface, I can see wanting them shredded up and broken down as well because they don't blow away. And they don't bind up. It makes them a much better source of worm food and leaf mold and things like that. So I can see why you would want to do it. I'm just saying you might want to evaluate whether you need to. Likewise, if you are composting and you're getting diverse with your carbons and you're bringing straw and leaves and nitrogens and food scraps and all these other things together, you're probably not going to have a big problem with the leaves binding up. It will cook and it will break the hell down. If you build a big cubic meter or more uh, compost pile with, you know, 25 bags of leaves, you're, you're getting there real quick. Um, and you turn it, the first time you turn it at four days, and you turn it every two days for 18 days, you're not going to have much problem needing to, to get in there and, 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 and shred it. It'll work. It'll happen. Would you might get a better result if you were to shred them? Yes. So, again, I understand why you'd want to. I'm just saying don't be married to the fact that you have to. Now, when it comes to shredding them, my go-to method's always been a run-over lawnmower. You know, that's it. That's it. Push mower. Now I've got a little tractor. Pile them up. Run over them. It works. Um, yeah, 25 bags probably took you a while. Um, so there's there's a few ways we could do this. Um, 
if we wanted to do it kind of industrial strength tough, if you found an old lawnmower that kind of had seen better days but had a good motor on it, I guess it's conceivable that you could build it in a way where you had the deck and bolted it to some side of a box and put a hole in the deck with a funnel and ran the lawnmower and just dropped leaves through the funnel. Uh, that would probably work really, really well. Um, that could be done with, with uh, an attachment running a bunch of weed whacker strings, too. I mean, we're talking about leaves here, not wood chips, right? So I guess you could do that if you wanted to get, like, creative and Rambo it. Um, my neighbor, now I've never used one of these, so I don't know, but your numbers for the cost of a leaf shredder vacuum seem pretty expensive unless you're getting into a pretty big system. My neighbor in Arlington, when I lived down there, had a, a, a plug-in thing that looked like a leaf blower, but you could put a bag on it and suck the leaves up. It worked very, very well. It put a ton of leaves into a standard like contractor garbage bag, a ton. They were you, know, you picked it up, you were surprised at how heavy it was. And I don't know how long it really took to fill that bag, because I didn't stand out there and watch him do it, but I would always just take his bags. And it did a very good job. I don't remember exactly what brand it is, but I found a product that looks very much like I remember it looking on Amazon. It's made by Toro. It's the Toro 51609 Ultra. Um, it is a blower and vacuum and shredder. And the price on it is $70 bucks on Prime. Free shipping. I'm thinking about buying one. I didn't know they were that cheap and seeing how well it works. It may not work as good as I think it works. And the reality is it has 862 customer reviews, 507 five-star reviews, 233 four-star reviews, and only 35 one-star reviews. Some of the one-star reviews are kind of harsh, but I'll tell you that you know every once in a while somebody gets a lemon, And then some people have unreasonable expectations, and then some people are idiots. You always have to temper your Amazon reviews and, and look at how many positive versus negative reviews are. Because I, like I read one negative review that basically you could tell that this guy had basically trashed this thing for three years, and then it stopped working, and then he came back and he, he gave it a one-star review. Like, I left it outside against the thing. Maybe I should have done that, but it still works. So he basically leaves it outside in the elements against his shed, and eventually it, it, it fails, and it's, it's their fault. There's another guy that was bitching because, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the plug on the back got damaged, and it wouldn't hold an extension cord on it anymore. I mean, there's, you know, reasonable expectations of product manufacturing, but with 500 positive reviews, it probably works very well. Now, the volume might become an issue with something like this, and that might be why you're looking at bigger things. So I'm going to say if you want to go with really high volumes, you know, I would say if you're going to step into $500 range, you might as well buy like a Troy Built or a Toro or a Husqvarna, you know, chipper shredder. Um, because while those tools, and I'm talking about the ones you see sitting in front of Tractor Supply or Home Depot or Lowe's, those machines are marginal as wood chippers. They really are. Um, you're asking for a lot of power out of a pretty small machine and very high-speed revolutions and things like that. And if you're going to do a lot of shredding of branches and limbs and wood chipping, you're better off with a big machine, and that means you're probably better off leasing one twice a year and getting with some friends and doing it or something like that. Um, but when you're just throwing light brush and leaves into it, um, they'll probably last damn near forever, because you're not asking much of the machine now. So there's no doubt you would do more and get a great result with a machine like that, and those are in the $500 range. But as far as the blower vacuum, I can't even find a $500 blower vacuum. 
I mean, I, 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 I've looked and I don't see it. I mean, when I look at like lawn style power tools, you know, what is, what are the, the brands that are, you know, when you go to chippers, shredders, chainsaws, um, you know, you, you name it. What are the brands that are known as being the best? You know, I get into like the, the mid grade Beskis Husqvarna and a Husqvarna tool that does this that's gas powered is like 150 bucks. And if I want to take it up another level and go, what is, what is known as being the, um, the, the toughest of the tough, uh, the best of the best? One eight, one eight. Actually, Husqvarna is about a, a $200 tool. You know, before I go to the top, maybe I'm at Makita. Makita is, or, you know, Porter Cable or something like that. It maybe, maybe in some instances is a better option than, uh, than a Husqvarna. You're looking at like a $220, $230 product. You, you move up to like, to me, there's nothing beyond the quality in this world than a steel. And a, a steel, uh, SH56, uh, leaf shredder vac blower is 279 bucks. So I don't know what products you're looking at um, and what you're trying to do, Jeff, but I'm just seeing all of the options, including the very best, being a lot less. And if you think you can make some money doing this, then buying something like the Toro that's a plug-in product um, and then going into the suburbs and seeing if you can with a $70 product, you know, if you can at least make your money back, and get the, the stuff and go, that wasn't worth it, but I got my money back. That would be a good risk. And if you can, if you're make, if you find that it's actually a decent seasonal business that people are excited about it, if you can angle it with, Hey, guess what? Not only am I going to pick up your leaves, but I'm taking it and I'm, I'm doing a recycling composting thing and we're using this compost to build community gardens or however you market the angle. Then you might find a lot of people that would go, I don't need you to do it going, you know what? That's, that's pretty cool. So then you could use the money earned in this test market to upgrade your equipment down the road. Uh, I would go very lightly on cost with something like this. But again, I just don't see this $500 floor. So if you want to get back with me about what you were looking at and what the deficiencies are in the items I'm recommending here, are, I'd, I'd be happy to do a follow-up for you on it. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Christina from Georgia, and I have a few questions and a comment that I'd like to share. Um, the first two questions are for Chef Keith Snow. Um, first, how long does it take bacon grease to go bad, and what is the best way of storing it? And my second question is, um, I made some delicious butter from whipping cream, but within a week it turned sour. So um, is there any type of safe additive I can use or a process to prolong the butter shelf life? And my next question is for Jack. Um, can you recommend a nitrogen-fixing ground cover for an area of the backyard? I'd like to use it for three or have it serve three primary functions. Um, first is to be able to hold up to a lot of foot traffic. I have three young kids that love to play outside, so it has to be able to take some abuse. And two, something that chickens would enjoy eating. And three, preferably something that would not need to be mowed. Um, I was thinking about doing white clover or Dutch clover, but I've read that it really doesn't tolerate a lot of walking. It's kind of fragile. So your thoughts would be appreciated. Um, and I have no problem mixing ground covers either, um, whatever gets the job done. And finally, I wanted to share about my 401K. You've been talking about 401Ks. And I work for one of those companies that automatically withdraws money from each paycheck. Um, I did receive an email from them in the subject line saying 401K benefits. 
And I foolishly disregarded the email because I only work like maybe five hours a week for this company and very part-time. Um, and I'm not eligible for any of the benefits, so I just deleted it. And lo and behold, I noticed money was being taken from my check to fund my 401k when I hadn't signed or agreed to anything. So um, now to boot, I just got another email stating that unless I contact the financial institute by February, they're going to take an additional 1% out each year until the sum reaches 10%. And that just really pissed me off. I had to share that one. Anyways, I really enjoy the show and all the uh, different topics that you cover, and thank you for doing what you do. Now, this is one of those ones that come in for the expert counsel plus me, and I'm just going to keep the football and uh, do the whole thing and do it probably a lot quicker than you'd get an answer from Keith on this one uh, and probably make you less hungry. Um, let's start out with how long does how to store bacon grease and, and how long does it last. I don't know how long it lasts, but it's a long damn time. Uh, we have a ceramic crock with a, with a locking lid so that it stays closed that sits up on our uh, right up by our stove, and every time we cook bacon, we dump the grease in there. And we use it until we're out, and sometimes I get to a point where I haven't cooked fresh bacon long enough that, that I'm low on grease, and I cook some more, sometimes just as an excuse to eat bacon and make more grease. My grandmother did this uh, in her kitchen in Pennsylvania, where the summers were quite warm, and there was no air conditioning. We did have a small window unit air conditioner for part of the house uh, when I was living with my grandparents, but they had no air conditioning in the majority of the home. Uh, she did this for years and years and years and years, probably all the way back uh, her mother probably did it. No one ever had any problems ever, ever, ever. It wasn't an issue. No one even thought about like, is it okay to do this? So I'm going to tell you that unless you're trying to store like a couple tons of it, uh, in your pantry or something like that, that that's the way to go and do not worry about it. Moving on to butter. Butter was made primarily not just because it tasted good, because it prolonged the shelf life of milk. Uh, and, and milk fats and uh, the value that you get as far as uh, from milk. It, however, is not designed to make butter. Uh, making butter, however, does not, though, take that food uh, value and make it infinitely storable. Now, there are some things we can do to increase the storage life of butter. The number one is salt. Uh, the reason butter is salted traditionally is not just because it tastes good, though it does, but it's because it actually does add to the shelf life of butter. So salted butter will keep longer than regular butter. Now, one of the things you'll notice when you buy some whipped cream, and it's funny you, you mention this because I, I was just at the store, and I was picking up um, some stuff, and I looked in the thing, and there was a big thing of, like, I, I don't remember who makes it now. I call it Flying Cow because uh, it's got a picture of a cow that looks like it's flying on it. It's an organic uh, we usually buy their, their half and half for my coffee. But, you know, heavy whipping cream with a flying cow on it. And I almost grabbed it because I was going to go ahead and make some butter. And I didn't, you know, I didn't just feel like shaking a jar or whatever. Uh, so I didn't do it. When you make butter like that, it's really creamy. And it's really soft. And even if you put it in the refrigerator and then take it out to soften it, when it softens, it's really, really soft. And... It just spreads beautifully. It tastes creamy. It's delicious. And it's part of why you like it. But it's also part of why it will go bad on you. And if it went sour within a week, I'm imagining that you had it kept out instead of in the refrigerator. Keeping it in a refrigerator and covered will, will make it store almost damn near forever. But it can go a little sour even in, in the cold. And the reason is because of the cream buttermilk that's left in it. So the, the next thing other than adding salt to a cream butter 
that you do to improve its longevity is to press it. And this can be done with like a couple spatulas. So when it's soft, you press it into a, a block. That's, that's, you know, we have these sticks of butter now and we imagine that like they come in sticks because it's a convenient way to package them. No, they come in sticks because traditionally butter was pressed into a block like cheese. And the more of the cream that we press out and the harder we make it, the longer it will store. So those are the things you can do to improve butter's shelf life. About the only thing you can do beyond that to improve the shelf life of butter would be to can it, and it, it certainly can be done. But if you use a little salt with it, keep it covered and keep it in the refrigerator, and maybe do a, you maybe you don't have to press it completely out, but leave, press more of the cream out, the, the buttermilk out, the less likely you will be to have it go bad. I've also seen people do this. They make, you know, the classic way to make butter when you don't have a churn or whatever, you want to do it like for like kids. It's a good, this is so fun to do with your kids, folks. You should do this because they'll be ready to give up right when it finally happens. You get a mason jar, fill it with heavy cream, and tell them to shake it. And you take turns shaking it. It's your turn, my turn. You keep shaking it, and it doesn't take real long. Four turns in a whipped cream, and you shake it, and you shake it, and you shake it, and you shake it, and then it just like goes back to a liquid. And then you shake it and you shake it and you shake it and you shake it and it's not, Dad, it's not going to work. Just keep doing it, son. I'll shake it for a while. You shake it for a while. And also it just goes bloop and it turns into a big ball of butter. Well, a lot of times not only do you maybe press it out a little bit, but people will put it like in a tub and a little bit of the buttermilk's left in there with it. So the buttermilk's going sour in the bottom and that spreads into the butter. So making sure of nothing else is just fully drained when you store it. So maybe you don't press it that much, but, you know, put it in a... Uh, like a colander, and make sure it's fully drained. Maybe even rinse it off. I, I've never actually done that, so I don't know if that I'm actually going to do something bad to it. But but that's the other the side of that. Now, ground cover. Number one, I don't know who told you that clovers are not uh, good at handling traffic, but flatly they're wrong. But if you just plant clover, you've monocrop clover. I mean, the next thing you have to think about is why are you worried about nitrogen fixing a high-traffic grassy area? Uh, in, in earnest, let's say. Um, you're not planting anything there. Grass has its own nutrient cycles every time you cut it, as long as you're not bagging it up, taking it away. So don't get too obsessed with nitrogen fixing. It's just a good thing to have nitrogen fixers in there. Um, that said, some of the other things that you could plant in there that would be good nitrogen fixers would be something like bird's foot trefoil, prostate, uh, prostate bird's foot trefoil. Uh, very, very, uh, resilient plant. Kind of sort of looks like clover. Medics, like black medic, would be another option to plant in there with your with your clover. And grass, uh, a perennial grass uh, in, in that mix. I would do a mix like that and maybe add some plantain uh, would be another thing. When you look at improving soil, you're not just looking at nitrogen. You're looking at a, a combination of four main things. Uh, you are looking at bio bioaccumulation, which is just biomass, flat biomass accumulation. Anything that grows is cut and grows back will accumulate biomass and improve soil. The next one you're looking at is dynamic accumulation. Something that gets down into the soil, mines nutrients, and brings them to the surface. And as the biomass goes back, it also brings back the accumulation of nutrients that the other uh, organisms in the soil have trouble getting to. Right. So dynamic accumulators are generally deep taproots. So dandelion, right? plantain, chicory would be great dynamic accumulators to add into your mix. Nitrogen fixation, again, medics, clovers are your, your best ones. Uh, bird's foot trefoil, 
uh, things like that would be for a high traffic area just fine. And, you know, we had clover in our lawns uh, in, in America up until the, the early 1920s when everybody decided they wanted a freaking golf course. Uh, clover was very common in our lawns. When I, I lived in Pennsylvania, our lawns were full of clover, always. Uh, never had a problem with, with traffic. Now, you might get, if you have high traffic through anywhere, like a path, right? That area that people are always on. I'm not talking about people out on the lawn here and there. I'm talking about like that, you know, you go from here to your shed. There's going to be a worn path there. I mean, you're, you're honestly better off putting in some sort of a hard surface contour-based path and letting the water uh, infiltrate off that path uh, on, on that space other than turning it into a mud rut, which is a lot of times what these things become. But you, you're not going to have a problem with clover, whereas you wouldn't have it if there was grass there other than really high-traffic turf grass, which is probably not what you want. So I would do a mixture of perennial grasses, um, things like plantain, uh, things like chicory, things like clover, things like medic. That, that's what I would do with that right there. Now, on your 401k story, this is what I'll bet. I'll bet that if you look further into it, not only were they taking money out of your, your, your paycheck and putting it into your 401k without your consent, They were probably also, since you didn't set it up, you were going into the safest option, which would have been government bonds, uh, or if the company has a self-interest uh, where they have their own stock, the company's own stock. Those are the one or two places you'd be going in, and probably government bonds. And it's part of what I call the greater conspiracy, and what it's designed to do is to make sure that we can turn over our debt by taking this, this debt burden and assigning it to our citizens under the guise of protecting their retirement. It's just the first shot over the bow in doing this, and you'll see a lot more of it. So that's not bad. That's three questions and a comment in nine minutes. Uh, not bad there. Let's take another call. Good morning. This is Steve from Michigan. Uh, a day or two ago on your podcast, you mentioned uh, you were waiting to get your uh, tax-free status Uh I wish that you would abandon that. You're actually signing a contract with the government, and the government never gives without taking. So I'm surprised that that, that was even considered. Uh, the tax-free status is not worth selling your soul to the pricks in Washington. Thanks. Enjoy your day. Uh, um, frankly, when I heard this call, the first thing I thought of is, what the F are you talking about? I have no idea on God's green earth, what this person's talking about. And, sir, whoever you are, I really wish you would call back, and, and wherever you think you heard this, go listen to it and explain to me what the heck you're talking about, including what the hell tax-free status is. I don't know of anybody in this country that has tax-free status. I, I, I don't know of it existing. I know of tax exemptions. Um, the only two things I can think of this guy was talking about were one, we're trying to figure out if we can use a certain property for perma ethos and it's currently agriculturally exempt so that we pay taxes on it under agricultural status. So we pay less property taxes rather than more property taxes. And I would do that all day long. And if you don't, I think you're a fool. Or it's possible because I know that recently we got the thing to file the homestead exemption for our home, and maybe I mentioned something about that, and what that does is lower your property tax bill. And that's basically your state saying uh, the first X dollars of value in your home is exempt from, from property tax. 
Both of those are taxes you're going to pay anyway and simply paying less and not doing it is just dumb. It's just giving the government more money for no reason at all. Now, let me say this. If the government had a thing that says, like, you can do this and become tax-free and not pay taxes anymore, yeah, I would do it. Yeah, I know what we're talking about now. Now I finally know what the hell this guy's talking about. He's talking about a history segment. That has to be it. We talked about earlier this week how the, uh, I believe it was in, 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 in Sweden, the king issued a decree for the nobility that if they paid a, a tribute, a, a lump sum, they would never pay tax again. And that if, um, you, uh, if you had one of your, one of your children basically serve in the cavalry, you would become free of taxes. Um, yeah, that's not now. That's not today. I think you've got a wire crossed somewhere. But the, the, the reason I played this call, even though it made no sense to me, is one, I, now I know what the hell the guy's talking about. I finally figured it out where he got this from. But this attitude that this guy has is, is a big part of people stepping on their own Johnson, let's say. Okay, just Just being spiteful for the point of being spiteful to the point of harming yourself to be stupid. And here's what I mean by that. What this guy's saying is if there was a way not to pay taxes, I wouldn't do it because then I'm making a contract with the bastards in Washington. You have a contract with the people in Washington to give them all the money they can extract from you right now by the nature of the fact that you live here unless you're one of these people that think you're a freeman of the land and you're not going to pay them and tell them so, in which case they will come extract it from you. You have a contract... Whether you agree to it or not, as a citizen of this country, to be subject to its laws and taxes. Now, I don't like the contract, I don't like many of the laws, and I certainly don't like many of the taxes. More on that toward the end of today's show. But you don't just get, like, th this is the, I just got a, a, an email from somebody that was a guy saying, an article from a guy saying, this is why I don't recommend anybody get a concealed carry permit. And this is the same but different, right? And this attitude of, like, I won't do it because. So this, this guy had a concealed carry permit from Florida. He was driving through Maryland. Apparently, a Maryland police officer got his, his tags, uh, ran his tags for one reason or another. He didn't commit any traffic violations, found that he was a concealed carry holder, therefore figured he must have a gun, uh, be carrying a gun illegally in Maryland, And pulled him over and said, where's the gun? And threatened him and his wife and basically just almost completely dismantled this guy's car. Found no gun. Eventually the guy was let go. Uh, but no, nothing disciplinary was done to the officer who clearly acted outside of his authority. So don't get a, con the, 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 the summation was constitutional carry is the only option. Oh, great genius. So the guy that, that has a gun and carries a gun legally in Florida is abused by Maryland, so he should go back to Florida, cancel his concealed carry paperwork, and start carrying in Florida and say, I'm doing so constitutionally, commit a freaking felony when he doesn't have to, eventually end up in a situation where he's caught with the weapon, be prosecuted for a felony, go to federal prison, not be with his family because you said so. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And there is a lot of this in the liberty movement today of people who are willing to cut off their nose to spite 
their face. If you want to pay the government less or no taxes, find every legal mechanism to do so and do it. And if they ever say, listen to me, I'll tell you right now, if the federal government would come to me right now and say, Mr. Spirko, here's the deal. If you can give us by any means $50,000 right now, we will contractually exempt you from the further payment of federal income tax for the rest of your life. They would have a $50,000 check the next day if I believe the contract. Oh, you've sold out. No, I'm not stupid. I know that that's way less than my total tax bill long term. God knows what they'll do next. What if they renege on the contract? At least I have something to stand on. If I have a piece of property... That could be exempted as an agricultural property, and I can take the tax bill on it from $6,000 a year to $60 a year. I'm going to do it because I'm not dumb. But again, tax-free status, I think you got your wires crossed here, dude. I really do. Um, it doesn't exist. But if it did, if it did, I'm not going to let the fact that it's quote-unquote a contract with the government prohibit me from doing it, because the government is initiating contracts with me all the time without my consent. Being able to actually dictate the stipulations and rules of one would be nice for a change. But the, again, the reason I'm, I'm playing this call is to make sure that if you're one of these people that would cut off your nose to spite your face, you, you kind of check yourself a little bit and go, wait a minute, does that make sense? Does that make sense? And if I sound a little outraged, it's more that I feel like this guy's, and I could be wrong, but I feel more it's like, like I can't believe you would do that. Listen, if you want to cut off your nose to spite your face, you go ahead. But don't tell me not to do it. Um, you know, or tell me I have to too, I guess is a better way to, you should cut off your nose to spite your face because I did. So we all have no nose. No, you go Mr. Noseless and, and, and I'll keep my nose. Thank you. I will reduce my burden of taxation to the state or the state, capital and small s, in every single legal way that I can. I will spend money on things in my business and create deductions where other people will spend money after the government taxes it because it's completely legal and it's how they wrote the tax code. The tax code is basically 5,000 pages and like 50 of them are what you have to do And 4,950 are how you get out of it. They wrote it that way, not me. It's complex. It's laborious. I'll stop on it for right now. But again, you have to start thinking. Well, don't do this because they will. <laughs> What is my best play? This is modern survivalism. Not modern bitterness. What is my best play in the current system? For myself and for the future. As long as there is the ability to carry legally, if you're going to carry, do it legally. Now, the day they say it's all illegal, maybe we have to make a collective decision. Like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Maybe you're back to John Pugliano saying, if 50 million of us say we're going to constitutionally carry, what are they going to do about it? The answer is they're not going to do jack diddly shit. But as an individual, they will crucify you with the system. They will make you an example. And the more they can make you an example, the more they will because they lead and they oppress with fear. So you don't take a headlong charge at the dragon. You look for the weak links in its armor and you continuously pierce them over and over again. Now, the little thing I said about the, uh, 
guy in Maryland. Let me have a little other bone I want to pick. So this Floridian goes to Maryland, gets accosted by the police department, has his vehicle completely ransacked, his threatened, has his wife threatened, police officer that commits the atrocity gets off Scott freaking free. Again, he was never cited with a traffic violation, which means he was illegally detained, and he was threatened only because this officer was able to determine that he had a carry permit. Do you know who I'm pissed at? Maryland? No, that's what they do. They're Gestapo there. Why do you live there? Why do you go? I understand why this guy was driving through, but I mean, Maryland is just, ugh. When it comes to firearm laws, one of the worst in the country. I'm actually pissed off at organizations like the National Rifle Association. Why are you not suing the shit out of this department, like in six different lawsuits? I think it's time for, you know, we as gun owners and supporters of the NRA give an awful lot of money to the NRA every year, millions and millions and millions of dollars. And occasionally they take up a lawsuit or something like that. But this is the place to make a stand. This officer should be fired. And everybody in his chain of command who was part of this and allowed it to happen should be fired. Not just fined, fired, and never work as a police officer. This is an abuse of authority. And this is where citizens need to start making more and more of a stand. This is an, I mean, this is ridiculous. I'll put a link to that story if I can find it in today's show notes for you. But, uh, yeah, Jack Spirico to the National Rifle Association, in these instances like this, that are clear-cut abuses of power, where are you? We don't always need you to nationally grandstand. Sometimes take the little guy, get his back, and shove this shit down the throats of the people doing it. And whoever that officer is. I'd love to speak to you face-to-face -face so I can tell you what a vehement piece of crap you are for what you did. A complete and total disrespect for the authority vested in you by the citizens of your state. You are an oath-breaker. You should not be an officer of the law. You are not responsible enough to be a security guard in a freaking mall. And I wish that your brother officers had enough intelligence to pull you aside and tell you what a vehement piece of crap you are. Unfortunately, it sounds like you work for a department where there's more people like you than people like that. Those of you in law enforcement that think a guy that acts that way is a vehement piece of crap, thank you for your service. Let's take one more call and we'll wrap up for today. Hey, Jack. Matthew from Tucson here, the warrior hunter on the forums. I have two questions about things mentioned in recent shows that I was hoping you could elaborate on. Question one is, what is a guild in permaculture and or food forests? And two, why are you more okay with a consumption tax over a productive tax? Uh, details below. Pertaining to the first question in your recent food forest shows, which, by the way, I've loved, you have mentioned several times plants gilding together. It sounds similar to companion planting with gardens. Is there something more to it than just that, or is it purely a term reserved for larger installations like food forests? Um, pertaining to the second question, in show 1269, you made a comment that while you hate any tax, a consumption tax is better than a productive tax. I'd never thought about a tax like that and have been mulling it over since hearing you say that. Like you, I believe all tax is theft, but could you please elaborate on why one would be better than the other since we live in a world with taxes? I seem to be viewing this only as black and white, but your comment makes me think that there is a gray area in between that I haven't considered yet. Thanks for all you do, and look forward to your answers. 
Wow, talk about two totally diverse questions there. Let's start with the Guild one, because it's actually probably easier, even though it's probably more complex. Um, easier to answer, more complex to comprehend. Um, a Guild really... We have to examine the word, and the word guild is really a beneficial association, and guilds can be limiting or expanding depending on how they work. For instance, the original guilds were tradesmen's guilds. So you might have a plumber's guild, and the plumbers decide that like there'll be this many plumbers that'll exist in this territory, and they'll all look out for each other, and it's kind of unionizing without really a union, and 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 they'll work together, and like they'll set a trade rate, and they'll say that like this is how much it is, so they don't really compete with each other, they cooperate with each other, and that can be beneficial, and it can also stifle innovation. Okay, but that's that's a guild, and that's how we have to think about planting guilds. Sometimes we want to limit. How much growth there is to an area by planting certain plants together, we can limit it. Uh, sometimes we want to enhance it by planting certain things together, we can enhance how much growth there is. But a guild is a beneficial association. And the difference between a guild and companion planting is companion planting is we just plant stuff together. And we try to plant stuff together that seems to do well together and seems to make sense, such as peas and carrots. Makes sense. The peas are a nitrogen fixer. Uh, they're bushy, the carrots take up less space, they kind of fit together nicely, uh, and when you harvest them, they kind of go together well in a dish. So it's a good companion plant. Um, gilding is far more complex. Gilding's where we start going into far more of a polyculture. And I would say all guilds in the planting world are polycultures, but not all polycultures are, all polycultures are guilds, but not all guilds are polycultures. So the guild gets much broader in its understanding. So a polyculture is, When we guild together plants and we take a tree and we say that tree is going to need some support while it's growing, so we'll plant a nitrogen-fixing shrub in the shrub layer and we'll coppice that nitrogen-fixing shrub and we'll put it to the ground. And that nitrogen-fixing shrub has these really aggressive roots that will spread out and maybe that shrub eventually is even going to be atrophied out and die. Maybe we plant four of them to one tree and only one survives long-term. So the root systems that are put down by the other three become available to the tree. That's, that's already far more complex than just a simple companion planting because it's a mutual supporting. And it's also a timing. I don't, might not have to atrophy out anything. If the shrub is a species that lives in best conditions for seven to ten years, and the tree is a, a species that lives for 150 years, um, is a major overstory, then the shrubs will disappear on their own and they will leave behind the space and they have gilded. But I might also plant in some things that attract beneficial insects, and those beneficial insects will support other plants. So, for instance, if I am trying to have a vineyard and I'm having a problem with leaf hoppers, I might plant blackberries. Why? Well, a very similar leaf hopper eats blackberries. So now I have more leaf hoppers, right? So companion planting by itself, you'd go, that doesn't make, I'm, I'm attracting more pests. But if I want lions, in a, a part of Africa that's been decimated and there's nothing there, and I just put lions there, what happens? The lions starve to death and die. Or more accurately, if I want the lions who are still left to show up there, the first thing I have to do is restore the grasslands and restore the plains game. If I restore the plains game, the leopards and the lions will come back. Assuming there's any left on the periphery, when I restore the, pred the, the prey, the predator will return. So, with guild understanding, I plant the blackberries because the blackberries bring in leafhopper predators. 
But the blackberries leaf out very early in the year, and the grapes relatively late in the year. And the problem is if I don't have any blackberries, the leafhopper predators go where the blackberries are, and by the time the, the grapes leaf out and, the, and that, that leafhopper's there with the grapes, there's nothing to feed the predators up till then. They're somewhere else, or they don't show up. So by the time they start to show up, it's the end of the season, they've already done their damage. The timing's off. So by putting blackberries with the grapes, I stretch out the population of leafhoppers. Now, it just so happens that the leafhoppers that eat the blackberries don't eat the grapes. And that the blackberries are so fast-growing and so tough, they really can't be much hurt by the little leafhoppers that come on the blackberries. But the predator that specifically preys on leafhoppers doesn't care if it's a blackberry leafhopper or a grape leafhopper. It's happy to eat either one. So by timing this and putting in this blackberry along with my guild with grapes, I attract and maintain the predator population so that it's there to do me the most good. Now that's that's so beyond companion planning of itself. Here's where it gets really cool. That example I gave you comes from a study that was done in California that I learned about from Dave Jackie, the guy that wrote Edible Forest Gardens. That study concluded that if a large stand of blackberry existed within four miles of a vineyard, there was a marked effect on the population of predators. So <laughs> a companion planning is these things are close to each other. A guild is these things relate to and help each other. So I could have a variety of apple trees planted on a property. Just when I say a variety, I don't mean a variety, I mean a variety. So like 10 different apples that are designed to go into blossom at different times, but make sure there's enough overlap that there's good cross-pollination. The bees have one apple tree uh, available to pollinate another apple tree. Those apple trees don't necessarily have to be close together. They could be spread out over a multi-acre property And the bees, as they travel through the whole property, will pollinate the, you know, the Jonah gold to the, 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 the pink lady. And that means those trees are gilding with an insect vector, a bee, even though they're not directly gilding with, say, a root interaction. Or if I have a large stand of trees on the higher part of my property, and there's a lot of leaf litter falling down, and I don't really do anything with that. It's a zone five. It's a forest. It's an unmanaged forest. But as it rains, there's a nutrient cycle, and a lot of the nutrients come down through the, the slope of the land through earthworks and actually provide fertility for a, an orchard that's quarter mile away from the forest. The forest and that fruit orchard are gilding through a nutrient cycle. So a guild is far more complex than a companion plant. And a guild is actually far more complex than just a simple polyculture. The polyculture is where you can see the direct interactions. And that's a guild. There's no doubt if I plant a comfrey next to a citrus tree, the citrus tree has shallow roots, the comfrey has deep roots, the comfrey leaves are mulched to the citrus tree, the comfrey gets down and accumulates nutrient that the citrus tree could not reach otherwise. That is a guild. And it's a polyculture. They're growing symbiotically together. But if I plant that comfrey 100 yards away and I don't do something to create a vector, some sort of way to transmit the benefit of one to the other, 
It's probably the case that that comfrey plant does very little for the citrus tree. It might attract some predators, and if it's not too far away, they might do something for the citrus tree, but it's like increase the spatial relationship. The value of the association drops dramatically, where there's many guilds where the spatial relationship can be quite dramatically large, and the interrelationship and support remains. If I plant a huge stand of forest on the top of a mountain and then cultivate further down grade, those two will associate in a guild for centuries because the top of the mountain will be stabilized, the runoff will be stabilized, and the mid-slope will be more fertile because the forest is up there. That's a guild, if that makes sense. So that's, that's gilding. Now, totally different question all the way out of left field. Why is a consumption tax better than an income tax? I have to say this again for the purists to say, well, there should be no taxes. It all sucks, and you know the government sucks, and we shouldn't be giving them. I, I, I get it. I get it. I get it. For the love of God, I get it. I understand. If I could eliminate all taxation tomorrow morning, I would. I, I would. If you said you can push a button, and then the government will have to figure out how to voluntarily get citizens to support its programs, I would do it. So please don't don't go down the rat hole. The, again, we're the, back into the cutting off your nose to spite your face. What could get done? And the reason a consumption tax would be more beneficial than a, a an income tax, a production tax, is, is multi-layered. And the last one should appease the people that are purists. But I'll save it. So when we look at an income tax, what it does is it actually punishes productivity. The more productive you are, the more they take. And because it's aggravated by what's known as a graduated income tax. In other words, one person's income has them paying an income tax of 20%, and another person's income has them paying a tax of 30%. If they both paid 20% in a flat tax, the, the person with more money would already pay more, but his insult, his injury, is aggravated by a higher rate. And if you think about it, the whole concept of this is preposterous and ridiculous. If you're going to say we should all pay a part in society, and those of us who are more successful should pay a greater share of the burden because we have more success, I don't like that. I hate it. I think it's Marxism. But fine, if we all paid 10 or 20%, or frankly, if we all paid 30%, that would be the case. But the fact that some people pay zero, some people pay 12, some people pay 15, some people pay 30, and some people pay 38% is preposterous. So what that means is that a large amount of what could be productivity in business in America today and in innovation in America today is redirected from making more, doing more, producing more, doing better to how do I mitigate my tax consequences. Entire industries exist to do this. CPA should be telling businesses, here's how to maximize your cash flow. Here's how to uh, incentivize our employees. Here's a small investment in our employees with a big return. Here's how to form a, a creative association and capital sharing with another corporation. Instead, the majority of, of, of financial management of a company is, what are the tax consequences of our decisions? And all of those resources go to that. So that alone stifles innovation and creativity. But it also, you know, if you're going to tax the shit out of me, I'm going to get to a certain income level and go, I'm comfortable now. Why am I going to work twice as hard to make twice as much more 
to only keep 25% of it because there's a diminishing returns. You really start to get hit harder and harder on additional income as you become more and more successful. The majority of the population, of course, doesn't care because they never do become that successful. You know, they, they sit with an income of 75 to 150K. They pay a lot of taxes at that rate, but they don't really see what happens when you go from, let's say, making 150,000 to making 300,000, how little piece of that 150 you're then able to keep. And how much harder it is to make that next 150. Especially as a business owner, dealing with everybody's freaking problems and employee turnover and all the other shit that even if the government wasn't involved would still be there. Then you add the government burden before you even get to the income tax component of it. And you then you get all these regulations and oh my God, and it's so much work. So there's a point where people like me that could be running multi-million dollar companies today if they wanted to say screw it. Make a good, solid income like I do as a podcaster and say, that's it. There's no incentive for me to work any harder than I do now. That is actually part of the decision-making process. Why do I want to build a company into a five to $10 million company so I have a bigger bullseye and a bigger burden? So that's, that's in itself. That problem gets largely corrected. The other thing is your taxation is completely without your consent under, uh, under an income tax. You have to work. You have to earn income or you have to live a very miserable life. So if you want anything other than a subservient existence, you're going to make an income. And because of the income tax, even if you pay little, very little income tax, that's why you make a very low income. Because the entire economy now is set up into these blocks and stages, this, this caste system of income. And you're occupying the lower caste because of it. Your opportunities to move up and innovate are lower because I, as an employer, have to spend all my time worried about how I make sure I can compensate my high compensation employees, how I can retain that talent, and how I can do so and make money for my company without paying so much in income tax that it's not worth it, and how do I structure this, and all this bonus crap you hear about with CEOs, that's because of the tax law. It's all designed to circumvent it, and it just screws everything up. So that also is the reason. It's the lack of consent. And you say, well, if there's a consumption tax, then they can still tax me without my consent because when I go down the store and buy something, then they tax it. It's true. But generally speaking, when you look at sales taxes, you only tax new items the first time at the last point of sale. So what I mean by that is let's say I have a business and I make pens, Like, like Jeff does that called in earlier today, the guy that called in with the shredder leaf question. He makes pens. And I buy parts of that pen. And I buy the, the ink part, I buy the body, and I buy pieces of wood that I turn on a lathe. If I'm doing it as a true full-on business and I'm reselling it, I don't pay sales tax on any of the pieces that go into there. Not in this country yet. Now, in places like Europe, you have what's called a VAT tax or value-added tax where it's taxed everywhere. That's terrible. But in this country, in the way that a consumption tax would work under the current system, I wouldn't pay sales tax on any of that. I would build the product, and when I sold it, if I sold it to a consumer, you'd pay sales tax. If I sold it to a reseller, let's say I go out with Amazon, I say, I make these things, I'll provide them to you as one of your, your providers. 
I would sell it to Amazon. They would pay me a wholesale rate. There's still no sales tax. It would only be charged once at the final point of sale. Now, you bought it. It's been taxed. And you keep it for a while. And you're you're out one day, and a guy says to you, hey, man, that looks pretty cool. Where'd you get it? Oh, I got it here. Well, I'm going to go buy one. Oh, they don't make these ones anymore, or they're really expensive. But I was going to get the new model. I'd like to sell this to you used. There's no sales tax on that. Items already been taxed. No sales tax on used tax, especially private uh, exchange. So that would mean that there'd be a huge market of second-use goods that would have a premium in that they're not taxed. Because there would be a higher sales tax on that which is taxed. So that also would be good. But I'll tell you the big reason I would I, I think it would be best. And it's actually why if I really wanted this reason to work, I wouldn't go to consumption. I'd go to a flat tax. I'd go to a flat tax. And I know people are rumbling right now, but wait do you hear why. Because it will make everybody feel it equally. You see, the biggest thing that the government uses to play all of these games and screw people over at all levels is a caste system. In India, they have a caste system based on your birthright and things like that. In this country, we have a caste system that's based on your income, primarily, and where you live and what kind of school your kids go to and what kind of car you drive and things like that. Um, and this, the, the difference is, of course, that in our caste system, you can move between the castes or the classes. It gets more and more difficult to move as you go higher and higher, and it gets more and more difficult to, to, to move in these class systems from like the middle class to the upper middle class as they do more and more that destroy our economy and just destroy the intrinsic value of our nation, but you still can do it, right? You're, you're, there's nothing that's like, oh, you were born to so-and-so, you, so you will never be shit. It's not that bad, but it's pretty bad. And they don't really care if you move. What they care is that you you identify with your, your current class or your caste and so that you see others as the enemy. They want the middle class to loathe the poor because they are the, the people that are just taking from them in welfare. And they want them to hate the rich because they have so much more than they do. And they want the poor to hate the middle class and the rich, and the rich to hate the middle class and the poor. They want everybody hating each other. And then they can do things like come out and go, well, uh, I'm just asking for you know people like myself that are have done well in America to pay just a little bit more so that other people can have a little bit more. Our president, ass clown supreme. Now, this is all because the person who kills themselves to make a quarter million dollars a year pays a higher tax rate than the person that works really hard for 50. That's the only reason they can do it. And that's why a flat tax might do more to ameliorate this problem than even a consumption tax. Because here's why. When you, when you told the guy making 50 grand a year, well, the guy that makes 250 a year, he's going to get a tax increase five times what yours is. You'd say, but you're, you're still getting one too. And really, you're both going up one point or two points. It would affect him equally, and therefore he would be like, wait a minute, what are, we, what, what are you going to do with this money? See, the problem is, as long as people feel somebody else is paying the bill in government, they don't ask, do we really need to do this? Because it's somebody else's problem. The beauty of a flat tax or a consumption tax, everybody would share the burden equally. So everyone would become interested in what the hell are you, what do you need this for? Because right now the truth is we have a lot of Americans that feel like they are overtaxed that pay little to no income tax. 
We have people between standardized deductions and their income level. They're like, oh, I pay taxes. They take money every week. I see it go out. A lot of the money that they actually pay is Social Security, which is a completely other problem that we'll talk about on another day. It's too complicated to merge into the income tax, right? But they see this income tax come up. Then they get a tax return. Then they get money back. And they don't realize they get all the money back. Sometimes people get more back than they pay in through earned income credit. And they still feel like they're paying taxes. But there's this whole game. You give them the money, they give the money back. You feel like you're part of the system, and you feel like you're paying your fair share, but you're not. And then this guy's told, he, he, this guy, look at what this guy has. He drives three Lexuses, for God's sakes. He's just asking him for like a little bit more. They're like, well, he should pay. I pay. How hard is it to make a living at my level? And they just play you like fools. It's like the politicians must look at us like we are ants and not in the way I teach you to be ants, like fire ants that will bite their ass. These like just like peons, they just like these just like chess pieces. Like these people are so st this is so easy. You know, the Federal Reserve must think that the American people are just a bunch of dim idiots for how easy all of this manipulation is. It's like it's so simple. Just whenever they're mad, like politician school. Right? If there was a school for politicians, not like political science, right? Which really is, but like if there was an honest school for politicians, not honest politicians, honest school, this is how you do it. It'd be like, uh, today we're going to talk about dealing with angry constituents. This is what you do. Whenever somebody's pissed off, find something that you're not responsible for that will piss them off more and make a big deal out of it. So if they're pissed off about their taxes, find some people that are really rich and that pay a lot of taxes but still have so much more than the people that are pissed off do and point to the fact that if they paid more, these other people would pay less, knowing full well that even if you make the rich people pay more, you're not going to have the other people pay less. But just just make them mad at the rich people. Uh, yeah, and you say, I got a hand in the back, and be like, Uh, Mr. Instructor, um, yeah, but what about when the rich people get mad? Oh, this is, hold on, hold on, look, 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 you just flip it around. Then, then you tell your wealthy constituents that it's these, these, these middle class people with this low tax rate that, that have all these, these exemptions that aren't paying their fair share. And then they're mad. So you redirect the energy over there. And then you're like, and then somebody else raises their hand and goes, um, yeah, well, what happens if like the middle class and the rich, who are actually not that far apart, and a lot of the middle class workforce start talking and start realizing that both of them are, you know, unfair. Well, come on, guys, start thinking for yourselves, dudes. This is what you do. You, you get the upper middle class and the, and the, and the wealthy, the semi affluent together, and you say, look, guys, It's all these poor people on these welfare programs. They're the ones that are the drain on society. So it's not, you know, if we could just cut welfare and entitlement spending, then you guys wouldn't have to pay so much. And you make them mad at the poor people. And, and then they say, like, for extra credit, who out there can figure out what to do when the poor get angry? And somebody raises his hand and waves it. I know, I know. What you do is you get the poor people to to be mad at the rich people who are paying their way because they're not paying enough and that's why they have so little. And you're like, good job, Johnny. That was great. that would be politician school. And it we're so stupid that we fall for it. But it's not like they're without tools to get this done. And it can and a tax on productivity and specifically a graduated tax on productivity. 
The more productive you are, I don't just take more because I'm taking a percentage and, you're, and the total of the percentage goes up. I take a greater percentage. I want you to think about it from just, just like make it real. Make it real for yourself. Okay, so you're a potato, potato picker. That's your job. You pick potatoes by hand. That's real work. There's no way around that it's real work. You got to do it. And you go out on a day and you work really hard and you pick a hundred potatoes. And on your way from the field, you're going to sell your potatoes to the farmer. The farmer says, you pick the potatoes. I pay you a dollar per potato. Be nice. Ain't going to happen. But let's just make it simple. So you've picked a hundred potatoes. You're going to get a hundred dollars. Now, as you're on your way off the field, right, home from work, about to collect your paycheck, I'm standing there and I go, hi, I'm the tax man for the United States federal government. You picked a hundred potatoes today, I see. And I go, and, he, and I go, yeah, I, I picked a hundred potatoes. And he goes, your share of the tax burden is 10 potatoes. Okay. Let's say you, you actually are okay with this. You might, if it was done that way, you might actually feel it a little bit more, but you're like, okay, here's your 10 potatoes. You take your 90 potatoes. You go to the farmer, you get your $90, you go away, and, and you come back tomorrow and pick another 100 potatoes. And after a while, you get kind of in this groove of like, I just give this guy 10 potatoes and I go on. So, you know, as you're, as you're working through your career, you start getting better at picking potatoes. And the farmer starts letting you into better parts of the field. And you get a little bit of automation going. You invest and you go to class for potato picking. And you become a really great potato picker. And then you go out and you go, I am going to earn my family more money. And you go out and you pick 200 potatoes in a day. And you get up to the guy that's the, the, the tax collector at the, at the base of the field. And he says, hey, how you doing today? How'd you do it? You go, 200 potatoes. And he goes, well, you know what that means? And you go, yeah, no problem. Here's 20 potatoes. And he goes, oh, no, 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 man. You've doubled your production. You, you, you are now wealthy as a potato picker. You're one of the top potato pickers out there. You're benefiting from this field the farmer planted. And I'm the reason the farmer planted the field, even though he's not. That's the lie. That's the great lie of government. And because of that, you have an even greater share. And I say, okay, how many potatoes do I owe you? Well, your tax has gone to 20% from 10%. So now you have to give me 40 of the 200 potatoes. So now you work twice as hard but you don't get twice as many potatoes. You still have more. So you think, understand the system now? I'm going to work really, really hard. I'm going to become even better. Because this system, at least, I still am ahead. So within a few weeks, more study, more schooling, more bargaining with the farmer to get the best fields because you're doing such a good job for him. Now, you go out, instead of picking 200 potatoes, you go up again a third, 300 potatoes. You're now picking 200 more than the original 100. You've, you've increased your productivity by 200%. And when you go to leave the field that day, the, the, the IRS agent, potato agent, This is great. Now your tax rec, your, your tax burden is the top tax burden. And instead of 38, we'll call it 40% to make it simple. You owe me 80 potatoes. Would you be okay with that? 
And if the answer is no, then you shouldn't be okay with a graduated income tax because it's the exact same thing. And it makes about just as much sense. And in that environment, I could blame all the other potato pickers. And I could go, listen, dude, I know it sucks you have to pay 40%. But those guys over there are only paying 10%. And they don't even do as much work as you do. And then you'd be pissed. And the guy that comes up and says, man, I don't like giving you these 10 potatoes. You go, you know what? That dude over there, he gets 300 potatoes a day. He ends up keeping 240 of them. That's not fair. And I get him pissed at you. But what if, in our little make-believe world here, everybody gave 10 out of 100 potatoes? How much more incentive is there now to pick 200 potatoes than just 100, or 300, or 400, or 500? And when you decide, as the potato tax collector, that you need more money, You just got to have it for some program that none of the potato pickers asked you for, by the way. Like stealing some other country's potatoes. You had to say to all the potato pickers, guy shows up with 100, here's your 10. No, I need 15 today. Why? Oh, we need more taxes. And you can no longer say it's the rich potato guy's fault. Because you're also charging him 15 potatoes per 100. It wouldn't be so easy anymore, would it? And your immediate solution would be, those who have more should pay a greater burden, and now I can go back to my class warfare situation. And that's an income tax. If there was a consumption tax, I would pick my potatoes... I would basically sell them to the farmer in the form of being paid for the work. He would sell the potatoes. And only when the last person who was actually going to eat the potato was going to buy the potato would a tax be rendered. I still don't want a tax rendered. But it would sure work a lot better. And it would put more money into circulation. And it would give people greater control over their own incomes and their own futures. That's why I think a consumption tax would be better, or a flat tax. And it should make you think about how unfair our current system really is from the story of the potatoes. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way